GM everyone, welcome to Flywheel, your number one source for everything Frax, DeFi, and everything in between. If you want to know what's going on in the world on chain, well, you've come to the right place. This is DeFi Dave here with Capital K, and we're here to help you harness the power of the flywheel. And this week, we had on someone who saw the whole flywheel and then some, brought a lot of context to the game. We had on Electric Capital's very own Ken Dieter. Uh, honestly, Kit, I'm not even going to ask you for your thoughts because we're going to get right into it because I don't even want, like, there's so much alpha and like so in this episode and Ken just articulates everything so well that like, I don't want to take anyone else's time. So we're going to get right into it, everyone. Make sure you hit that bell button, subscribe on YouTube. Make sure you leave us a comment. Let us know what you think below. Give us a like. Make sure you follow us on Twitter at FlywheelDeFi. Join our Telegram at FlywheelDeFi. Follow me at, at, at DeFiDave22. Follow me at 0x capital underscore K. And let's get the flywheel spinning. Do you hold ETH but don't know what to do with it? Want to earn those juicy liquid staking derivative yields but don't know where to start? Well, Frax ETH is there for you. Frax ETH is Frax's native LSD solution, allowing you to earn boosted yields in multiple ways on your ETH. If you want to get started, go to app.frax.finance and turn your ETH into Frax ETH today. Welcome back, everybody, to this week of Flywheel. And today, we're going back to our roots a bit. And we brought on a new friend with us uh, back into the roots because we're going to get deep into Frax on this episode of Flywheel. And we have on general partner at Electric Capital, Ken Dieter. Ken, how are you doing today? Great, great. Thanks for having me online. Thanks for coming. And I have to say, I've like never heard so much praise for like a group of people or VC than uh, Sam has for Electric. Like he has... He has nothing but the best words to say about you guys and how supportive Electric has been over the years and uh, everything about it. So, you know, I'm really excited to have you on and to just uh, like dive deep into your Frax thesis and, you know, everything about DeFi. Sure. Yeah, I appreciate it. Um, yeah, we love we love working with founders. We're all we're all either, uh, you know, founders ourselves or people who've spent a lot of time building products. So, yeah, that's where we that's where we like to connect with teams. Yeah. So we'll get right into it. Um, so what makes you so excited about Frax and how does Frax fit into your thesis and worldview? Yeah, so uh, I guess maybe maybe just to, to get one thing out of the way, um, I have to, my lawyer uh, makes me say certain things <laughs> when I come yeah, on these yeah, things. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, so, you know, I'm here in my personal capacity, uh, not speaking for electric. Um, none of this is uh, financial advice or investment advice, so please uh, don't take it in that way. Um, but yeah, otherwise, yeah, happy to dive in. Um, yeah, so in terms of, uh, you know, our, our general thesis, uh, we, we published in, in 2018 uh, this, this programmable money thesis. It's on our website. Uh, you know, that was kind of a, a popular term back then. But we really believe in that, that idea that blockchains are, uh, are, make like a fundamentally different trade-off uh, in terms of how you build software, you know, prior to blockchains, it was all about move fast, break things, scale up really quickly. Um, and, and, you know, it was all about speed and scale and blockchains actually really flipped that on its head and say, oh, it's not about speed and scale. It's about, you know, redundancy and robustness and safety and correctness uh, and immutability and all these things. Um, and when we look at that, you know, it, it's easy to see why money and, you know, it starts with Bitcoin, but like money use cases are really like uh, perfect for this kind of platform. This is, this is, these are the use cases where all these properties actually matter the most. Um, and so, you know, that, that was in sort of 2018. 
uh, as we move forward to today, you know, I think DeFi is sort of the manifestation of, of that core idea. And so we've seen all these services come online. Um, and so we're, we're big fans of DeFi, uh, obviously, and I, I'm personally a huge fan of DeFi. Um, and within that, you know, uh, I think it's been clear over the past three years uh, that stable coins have a huge sort of TAM in that, in that market. It's one of the biggest use cases. Um, we're, we're developing all of this in a essentially a dollarized world, though, you know, that's mm-hmm. starting to change maybe a little bit uh, on the edges right now. But, you know, for the most part, you know, dollar dominance is still very strong. And so uh, dollars as a product, if you think about it as a currency, is a, is a very strong product uh, everywhere in the world. And a lot of people want access to that. And uh, there's lots of barriers to that. So it makes sense that stable coins are a, um, a huge kind of first use case for DeFi. Um, and so, yeah, obviously Frax kind of fits into that. Frax starting on the USD side uh, fits into that, that idea really well. I think the interesting thing uh, that continues to, to sort of make me very interested in this space is that I think the Frax team has realized that stable coins are sort of a generalizable concept. Um, mm. This is the kind of the stable, the stable coin max, maximalism that, you know, Sam has started to talk about recently. Um, but I think at the end of the day, stable coins are actually uh, how uh, asset like rehypothecation happens within DeFi. It's sort of like the core mechanism. And if you think about what traditional finance is, it's sort of rehypothecation on top of rehypothecation. You know, it's just layers and layers of this stuff. And so now that we've sort of found the, the kind of core primitive that lets us do this, uh, you know, the, the scale of that will probably even be bigger than USD. Uh, you know, in the long run, you know, and, you know, we're starting to see that with Frax ETH and things like this. There are, there are other assets that, that are going to fall into this type of pattern. And so at the end of the day, you know, the thing that really excites me about it is that, oh, actually this, this thing applies to, you know, kind of all the finance, not just, not just Mm -hmm. dollars. Wow. So yeah, for those unfamiliar, stablecoin maximalism is basically this three-pronged system where you have the main stablecoin. You have the risk-free rate, whatever is the safest asset that whatever of said reference uh, peg of the stablecoin. So U.S. dollar, that's treasuries. And then you have the swap facility. So that could be either be like dollars to stablecoin, curve pool. That's basically stablecoin maximalism in a nutshell. And you said something interesting there. You said that you actually think there are, you know, stablecoins outside of USD that could be bigger than USD. I mean, we already see Frax ETH growth. Uh, what other ones do you see, like maybe in the future that could be bigger than USD. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, there, there's sort of a general question of, do you, yeah. do you believe USD uh, continues to, to uh, be dominant? Um, you know, the interesting thing about all this is, you know, if I don't know if it's RMB or if it's euros or whatever, mm-hmm. you know, all these things, uh, the, the nature of fiat coins or fiat money is that there is generally some central bank that mm-hmm. plays this game with interest rates. There is some risk free rate. Uh, that is very similar to the staking rate, you know, in, in proof of stake systems mm-hmm. um, that I think that structure is going to persist. And, and it is sort of like a fundamental feature of like economic organization and economies forming around a currency. And so as long as that exists, you know, it might be dollars today, but, you know, 50 years from now could be yeah. could be something else. And there's no reason that this stuff wouldn't apply just as just as cleanly to, to that type of situation. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, you know, I'm personally like very bullish Frax ETH. I mean, that's like today, if you're looking in like 
things that are live right now, that is the risk-free rate of DeFi, just getting those proof of stake validators mm -hmm. up. And like you've seen like the massive growth of Fraxeth is a, you know, basically it's proven the stablecoin maximalist thesis. Um, I actually, um, when I was on my trip, I uh, was able to ask a question of Bology at Pragma in Tokyo. And I asked him about uh, flat coins, which is, you know, coins mm -hmm. that are hedged to inflation. Him and Sam talked about it back in 2021. And he actually came up with this uh, thesis that although the dollar is the reserve currency right now, and it's like reserve currency, unit of account, he expects that to basically decentralize, quote unquote, in the next decade or so. Where like, oh, some, you know, currencies are like the Roombi, uh, the real and others could be the medium of exchange. Uh, Ethereum, Bitcoin could be store of value and whatnot. Um, so what is your take on, you know, this concept of flat coins, uh, especially relative, you know, that's relevant with uh, Frax and FPI and Balji's uh, kind of proposition that, hey, like the dollar, like the power of the dollar will basically spread across different currencies and, you know, values, store of values. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so I, I definitely, uh, I definitely am a believer of sort of that multi-currency world in the future. I think up until now, uh, you know, there even even today outside of crypto, I don't really feel the need to own a bunch of different like fiat currencies, like because it's not useful mm -hmm. in my daily life, and I'm not, I'm not hedging currencies in that way. Um, but as things become more digital and, and the, the sort of like associations and groups that we form with people become more arbitrary and, and multifaceted and kind of overlapping, uh, it makes total sense to me that we develop different currencies uh, that, that are for use in different economies. So, you know, I'm, I think on one extreme, you sort of get into that network state kind of a conversation. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I mean... I think I think what you're starting to see with the a little bit of the de-dollarization that's happening is like those pressures, right? Like the the con like the economy is is the natural state of the economy. I don't think is to have one monopoly currency um, because people in general, like you know, the whole world doesn't agree on on you know hardly anything, right? And so why why would you expect it to to agree on on how money should work other than you know? by historical coincidence, uh, you know, maybe someone is, someone is super powerful for a while and, and could force that on everyone. But I don't, I don't expect that to be the natural state. And I expect, uh, things like crypto to, to accelerate, uh, uh towards going uh, to a place where a lot of these things exist in parallel. So do you see crypto as this non-aligned technology in this, you know, future multipolar world that, you know, different nations and agents and just sovereign organizations in between can use to, you know, as a sense of refuge away from like, oh, I don't want to deal with like this fiat or that fiat. I don't want to pick sides. Let me just like go to, to crypto and, uh, you know, do my business over there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 I don't see it necessarily as crypto versus not it. I see crypto as sort of like, um, it's kind of the monetary equivalent of like what the printing press did to like religions, mm -hmm. right? Like mm -hmm. I think back in the day, information distribution and sort of the like uh, organization through religion were sort of like coupled, right? And today I think sort of monopoly on violence and, and monetary systems are coupled and crypto and blockchains come along and say, well, you can actually do this, you know, money part without that other thing. And we don't have to have these together, right? And so, you know, just in the way that I think uh, over time, uh, you know, freedom of religion became this 
concept and we we had to like basically move to a whole new continent to really explore that idea and set up a new governmental system around that i think the i think we're kind of doing that in the metaverse now right like it's, oh this internet is sort of the, the new world and they actually there's no reason now that we have the technology to do this there's no reason to have you know uh have this thing governed by the physical jurisdictions that we sort of came from and instead we have this technology to be able to create all these different monetary systems in parallel so you know why? Why wouldn't why wouldn't it end up that way? Why would we end up in one, you know, one system yeah. like we started with? So what are your thoughts on Balaji's concept of the network state? Because this like completely reminds me of this. Yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, I think it's very interesting. You know, he likes to. I think he likes to uh, think uh, through things to their logical extremes and mm -hmm. and get and they're very interesting kind of thought exercises. Um, I think some of the things about how the network state sort of manifests in physical reality are like at least feel to me a little far-fetched but mm -hmm. i can't you know everything the stuff about the thing about what Balaji says is it's hard to rule out completely either right you're like mm -hmm. yeah i could see a path yeah. from here to there yeah right uh, <laughs> and so you know i can't i can't categorically reject it either and yeah he's been, I, he's been right enough that like it's it would be kind of dumb to do that. a true contrarian yeah um i think when it comes to network states the big argument of network state formation is do you need the physical location first and then the people come or do you need to have the community first and then you find a physical location? Uh, after like, you know, talking to a few people, I think you need the community first and have yeah. a strong sense of purpose and why, and then you get the physical state. And we've actually seen this happen before with uh, Zionism in the earliest 20th century. It was a group of Jewish people yeah. that were like bonded and by an idea, uh, you know, organized and pursued it and were actually successful and founded a, a nation state so we'll see yeah. like what happens like, like that on the uh, network state level yeah yeah totally uh one of the one of the things uh maybe not to belabor this topic but um so i spent a lot of time at facebook before i joined electric i was there mm. for almost nine years um one conclusion that i've i've come to over the last you know four or five years really being full-time in crypto is that i don't think you end up with crypto without social networks coming first and the reason is that you need the you need humans to organize in a certain way before needing uh, your own currency to like exchange value within that, that yeah. system, right? And so whether it was Bitcoin talk or whether it was Twitter or you know Reddit in the early days of crypto, you need these organizations of people like like the people that like the Bitcoin sort of you know uh, economics appealed to were always there. They were just dispersed and disorganized, right? Mm -hmm. And the internet comes along and the social network comes along and says, oh, here's a way you can actually coalesce and, and <clears throat> coordinate your activities. Um, and I think you need that before, you know, someone can come, Satoshi can come along and say, well, here's actually like a currency system that can work for you and get broad, any kind of broad adoption around that. Yeah. Um, so that's just another way of what you're saying is that I do, mm -hmm. I do think the internet has fundamentally changed how humans organize and mm -hmm. Over all my lifetime, over you know my kids' lifetime, you know their kids' lifetime, that's going to slowly reflect onto physical reality, and whether that ends up in the biology version or not, you know, it's yeah. that's uh, it's up for debate. But honestly, it seems like Web two, unpopular opinion, Web two has been the perfect playing field for crypto to grow and blossom. People always talk about like Web three, Web three, but I feel like Web three is going to look nothing like Web two, or and it, it, it can't. Otherwise, it just won't be as good as Web 2. It'll be like Web 2, like bad yeah. copy. Um, I want to, there's a few different directions we can go. Um, so you said you were at Facebook for nine years. Um, what did you do at Facebook and what did you learn during your time there? 
Yeah. Oh, that's a, that's a, that's a whole nother podcast in itself. Um, okay. So I was mostly an engineer there, um, mm-hmm. spent a little bit of time as a product manager as well. Um, but uh, I had the fortune of starting uh, in the newsfeed team uh, mm-hmm. back in, gosh, when was that? 2010. Mm-hmm. So this was, uh, if you, the, the, the front end newsfeed team was four people, if you can imagine that. Wow. Um, so okay. yeah, Facebook was, I, I think it was sub 500 million MAUs at the time. Um, so pretty, I mean, pretty early on in terms of the, the, yeah, the, I remember pretty newsfeed Facebook. <laughs> yeah. 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 And bring back the old Facebook kind of protests and yeah, that... <laughs> all these kinds of things. Yeah. So yeah, I, you know, I mean, there's, there's a lot of things that I, that I learned there, but I, you know, funny enough, I, I tell people a lot that I think my time at Facebook actually really prepared me for crypto in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Um, How so? fa- uh, Facebook, one of the things you learn very quickly is that, you know, we had this model that it's, it's never as good as they say, and it's never as bad as they say, right? And so what that means is that, you know, when you're on the inside and you know what's actually happening, you can see the court, you can see all the data, you can see all the fundamentals, you know, who's working on what, what, what are the actual problems are, um, that can get very divorced from what the rest of the world thinks you're doing. The rest of the world thinks, sees protests and, you know, uh, in one election cycle, they, they're cheering on Obama. In the next election cycle, they're like, you know, pulling their hair out about Donald Trump. Like, you know, just the, the, the fluctuations of the, the media and everyone around you, um, uh, you know, exaggerate things in both directions, right? Um, and I think crypto, uh, just by its nature, adds sort of a financial element on top of all these things. <laughs> and so people are incentivized to exaggerate things uh, you know, more, more in each direction. And so having that sense of like, oh, you know, like, why is everybody so excited about this? I don't think this thing is like working that well. And also like, oh my God, everyone's like, you know, talking shit about this thing, but actually it's working. I can see that it's working, you know, having that kind of skepticism for like the, mm-hmm. the, the kind of the crowds like mentality um, and being able to see through that is actually like an extremely, extremely useful skill in crypto because Crypto is like, you know, I, I would say like, you know, 10 times worse than even social networks in terms of the, the yeah. amplification and the bubbles. It's like, how does the human, in. how does the human mind handle such volatility, whether it's like on their news feeds being, you know, fed this information by the almighty algorithm or, you know, or in crypto when you have like, you know, this hot new coin or hot new this or hot new fad or hot new meta come out and everyone's just jumping on it. And then it just numbers go up and down on a screen. It's just extremely fast it's like yeah can yeah. the human mind like comprehend all this yeah i think it can but it has to uh it has to learn through like mistakes right mm-hmm. one of the fascinating thing one of the fascinating parallels with uh social media is that um there aren't as many regulations about like what you can say and what you can't say right and that's why we ended up in this whole like misinformation like mess right but you know, it, it's interesting because we used to talk about like memes and misinformation sometimes as a virus. If you think about like a like a computer virus, right? Like the solution is to go and update everyone's antivirus software so that the thing stops spreading, right? But misinformation is a virus of sort of your mind, right? Like the memes are <laughs> viruses of the mind, and we can't go and update everyone's antivirus definition. Mm-hmm. You know, that's that's like education, you know, so yeah. to speak, right? And so it, it, it's really fascinating. Um, I think a lot of what financial regulation ends up being is sort of our anti, you know, our collective antivirus to a lot of this stuff, which is, you know, 
great. Like it, it has really, uh, it has really enabled the creation of a lot of different types of safe markets for people, uh, you know, over history. But the flip side of that is that people who have grown up in this system, they don't know what uh, an unregulated space looks like, right? Mm-hmm. And so their brains are not trained to recognize, you know, what what is a scam and what is not and kind of like all these types of things that, mm-hmm. that happen. And so I do think, uh, and, and historically you see this when like new types of financial assets appear uh, in the world, that there's a lot of like scamminess around it because people are, are taking advantage of that, that information asymmetry that exists right at the beginning when something, uh, something first appears. Um, and so, yeah, I, you know, it, it's, it's interesting to me that, um, that I, I do think over time, just in the way that like, if one of us were to see like an email scam or a chain email or something, we're like, oh yeah, that's, that's bullshit. Like, why would anyone fall for that? You know, there was a generation maybe or two prior to us that would totally fall for those things. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's what those things are targeted for. And, you know, just like that, I think, I think we're somewhat immunized to news feeds now, like mm-hmm. people who have grown up in, in our generation sort of know how to process that, but you know, crypto is like a whole nother, whole nother, whole nother ball game. Yeah. yeah. And so, you know, there's this, there's this mix of like, how do you, you know, how do you sort of build the natural like uh, herd immunity to this stuff, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so to speak, versus like how much do you sort of like uh, control that at some kind of centralized uh, level? I really like that. Com- yeah, I really like that compar- comparison you put forth between you know actual like viruses and and financial markets and like growing immunity, growing like this financial um, kind of immune system against scams, against mm-hmm. you know seeing through stuff and whatnot um i want and also um after this i'm i actually want to get into web3 social now um because you worked in social media and now uh you know web3 social is becoming a thing and a buzzword sure. uh what are your thoughts on it and like do you think what do you think it will look like uh do you think is there anything promising you see right now in the field um so you know we're we're, we're we obviously monitor the stuff that's happening right now mm-hmm. um a lot of it to be honest feels like kind of what DeFi was at the beginning, which was like, oh, let, you know, let's look at TradFi and see, uh, you know, what kind of products exist. And let's, you know, more or less try to replicate those same financial services on chain. And, you know, maybe we get some of the Web3 kind of, Mm -hmm. you know, permissionlessness and decentralized, you know, control type of benefits on top of that. Um, A lot of what I see in Web3 social sort of feels like that right now. Mm -hmm. Whereas it's really the things like, you know, AMMs or like these, these funny yeah. stable coins or like these sort of um, second, third generation, like really native things that uh, do things, provide services that like the, the prior like incumbents can't provide, right? Like always on liquidity uh, for long tail tokens. You know, like that's, that's like a thing that like we don't know how to do in a centralized way, in a regulated way. Um, and so that, you know, that's where kind of Uniswap and DeFi starts to creep in and I haven't seen sort of what that is for uh, for social yet on Web3. Mm-hmm. Um, that being said, you know, I think uh, depending on how you think about uh, how, how well certain social networks are being run right now, uh, there might be an opportunity that, that arises just because uh, there is sort of like a political will to, yeah. to move off of those things. Um, that being said, I don't, it's not as easy as uh, it's not. It's not like you just create some kind of decentralized system and it works, right? Like, and yeah, you probably yeah. need something like zk to come along because you know, 
with a, you know, block, everything's on chain. It's open. It's transparent, which is great. But, you know, you don't want to have everything completely open. Like, you don't want to signal like, hey, like I have, you know, this much ETH or, hey, like, you know, I have this or that because you can put yourself as a target. But if you can like signal that in a safe manner, um, that could be something interesting. Yeah, totally. And I also I also just think like a lot of a lot of the problems that that current social networks, even the Web2 ones face, they're not really tech problems. They're like they're like human problems. Right. The real problem is that like. You know, we as a country in the U.S. cannot actually agree on what is okay or not okay to say on a social network, and because we can't agree politically, we just like push it down to the the actual companies, and they're like, well, you know, if we we're damned if we do, and we're damned if we don't, right? So <laughs> then they get so, back for it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So that I mean, that that is literally the state of, of play right now. So yes, like you can move it to like a decentralized architecture, but fundamentally, uh, what controls these things, how you design these things, is a kind of political process almost um yeah. and, and i don't think any amount of technology is really going to change that yeah and i want to bring this back uh to frax because we were talking about mm -hmm. innovative DeFi. um you know from your observations uh what do you think has been the keys to frax's success and what do you think frax has done right where other stable coins have failed yeah um so i think there's a few different things um you know i think from the mechanism design not going all in on the seniorage model uh, mm -hmm. was like, probably, you know, I mean, we definitely saw our, our fair share of like degen kind of models here. And I think they were all, you know, interesting sort of as like mathematical primitives and, mm -hmm. and social primitives, but clearly, um, uh, you know, uh, I guess it's sort of this like endogenous stable coin kind of moniker that that's been floating around mm -hmm. uh, things that are like purely self-referential and purely reflexive. Uh, at least don't seem to work uh, uh, as of today. And so I think not, you know, uh, being conservative about the, the, the collateral ratio and things like that, I think that was actually uh, a, a very important part of the design that allowed Frax to, to survive, um, you know, through all that kind of uh, carnage and the other, other designs. Um, I think the other big part is it act, Frax was probably the first protocol to understand the curve game really well understand both the fact that this swap facility needs to exist, but also that uh, because of how the curve tokenomics work, you can actually benefit from providing liquidity, you know, swap liquidity uh, into your swap facility. So, um, and, and they've, they've got out to like a huge head start because of that. And, and mm -hmm. I think, um, I think they, they tend, they still are uh, state of the art in terms of thinking through those mechanics. Um, and then probably the third thing is they just ship really fast. Um, you know, if you think about just like in the last year, I mean, I think even a year ago, like we didn't have FraxSwap, FraxLand, FPI, Frax, like all these things happened, you know, within the last year. And, and you know, and I, I looked around at other large DeFi protocols and, you know, like Compound, like hasn't really shipped anything. Obviously sort of moving, you know, Uniswap sort of, maybe they'll do a UI or, you know, I'm not exactly sure what their, their plan is, but like. Yeah, just like the, the, the pure velocity is like incredible for this team. And so, um, you know, I think that's also kind of to your to your early question. It's one of the one of the reasons I continue to be like excited about it. Yeah, it's like, you know, my, the new mantra I've been saying about Frax, because, you know, now that they're going up to 100% collateral ratio, it's hard mm -hmm. for people to envision that as fractional. Now I just say Frax actually is short for fractal. Frax is a fractal of all of DeFi. If you want, mm -hmm. you know, 
want an LSD, you got it. If you want to swap lending, everything, a microcosm DeFi is basically Frax. Um, and that's what I've been using now, but I'm wondering if like, is there anything that you use? Like if I, you were like to, uh, describe Frax to someone who's familiar with DeFi, but like might've heard of Frax once or twice, but like, aren't, isn't too familiar with it. Uh, how would you describe Frax to them, uh, in like a few sentences or like, or in, in a simple explanation? Yeah. Yeah. So there's, there's two ways I like to explain this. Um, one is like if you're familiar with uh, ETH staking rivers, I think ETH staking rivers are actually pretty easy to understand. Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, you can stake your ETH, you can earn interest, but this ETH is just sitting in this kind of relatively safe place. So why not be able to use it as money as well? What if we just created these IOUs, you know, and, and manage that through a smart contract? Like you could have this sort of ETH on chain uh, uh, and, and pass that around and have that just be claims on you know, something in, in the sort of ETH bank, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think if you understand that, then really uh, it's actually uh, pretty easy to then map that over to the dollar side, right? Like what Frax is doing on the dollar side is literally the same thing, except instead of staking, you know, the, the backing asset into the the L1 staking system, it's either lending it out or it's sort of staking it uh, into, uh, you know, TradFi, right? Um, mm-hmm. And if there's a yield to be had there, then it's really exactly the same equation. So uh, so that's sort of one angle. If you're sort of more crypto native and at least understand what uh, uh, ETH staking is, then uh, I would come at it from that angle. The other angle that a lot of people are familiar with is that if you go on a brokerage today and you buy T-bills, if you buy like things that are less than 30 days, often that brokerage will allow you to use your T-bill position as cash. So they'll say, oh, if you want to underwrite like a margin, like a options position or something like that, they're like, well, this thing is basically as good as cash. So for the purposes of your account, uh, we're going to let you treat it like cash and fund some of these other you know, leveraged positions that you might want to do. If you think about what that is, that's exactly what Frax is doing on chain, right? It's just that instead of, uh, instead of um, doing it inside of a closed system, like inside of one brokerage, you're allowed to do it, you know, across all the systems in DeFi because there are smart contracts and you can sort of understand the, the guarantees that a smart contract makes around, you know, the custody of that backing asset. Um, and so, yeah, so it's basically, you know, T-bill rehypothecation for, for everybody in, in a very generic and open, open way that, that matches what DeFi wants to do. Yeah. So yeah, those are kind of the two ways that I, that I kind of come at this. Now, Ken, that's actually very interesting that you kind of bring that up, how using T-bills is pretty much cash equivalent. And we see the similarities there with, say, the Curve LP tokens for Frax's AMO, right? They mm-hmm. take the Frax 3CRV or Frax base pool, and they pretty much treat that as cash. Yep. And so I wanted to kind of double click into that. And you said Frax is so integrated with the Curve ecosystem. Do you feel that that is pretty much the state of play for stable coins in the near future. Meaning if any new stable coin were try to come into the market, they need to enter in the curve and the frags flywheel and play this game to be in the on-chain stable coin market. Um, yes and no. I think as of in this particular moment in time, um, it's hard to not play in curve. Um, just because I think Curve has the most to do, it, it's not perfect yet, but I think the most developed kind of tokenomic structures. And so, so in terms of being able to amass B Curve or Convex or, you know, whatever it is, and then 
incentivize liquidity into your swap facility. I think that that is a, like a key, key, key feature of any any stablecoin. Um, you know, Frax was the first to demonstrate this, but I think anyone coming along after them has to realize that like this is like a pretty efficient way to do this thing. Um, and so you know, until that changes, you know, I don't. I don't see where else you're going to go. I mean, I guess you could go you know, incentivize a Uniswap pool, but Uniswap doesn't have the same sort of mechanics in terms of its its own mm-hmm. um, its own uh, token. And you know, I think I think over the long term, once you end up with a bunch of V curve holders or you know convex holders that are locked in for a long time, it's going to be very hard to displace curve. So you know, I don't know if I don't know if like the book is completely written yet, but mm-hmm. in terms of the market today, uh, it's it's hard to really imagine alternatives yeah i guess the only alternative would be is if you know u.s regulation suddenly turns bullish you know stablecoin regulation is clear banks can issue stablecoins and then you just have someone like jp morgan like come in with like a 10 billion dollar on-chain stable swap yeah 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 i mean well but what would that be swapping against though i i think actually the 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 swap facility being like like i I think a lot of those fiat-backed stablecoins, if this does happen, you know, there's like some legislation that's like sort of being worked on right now. But like, mm-hmm. um, if that does happen, this, the fiat stablecoin issues are sort of like the ETH staking uh, operators mm-hmm. uh, in, in today's world, right? They, they sort of handle that like last off-chain piece. But I don't think that that nat- naturally gives them an advantage over something like a curve, which is like a fully decentralized, mm-hmm. you know, system here that has its own incentive mechanisms. Well, why don't, um, why don't it, you, yeah. Why don't you think is it, that it's an advantage? I mean, it, it can come in and do it, but like, like why would, you know, unless they did like sort of a sushi style thing against, uh, against curve. Um, I don't know. I don't, I don't know why people would switch over and, you know, on top of that, like, you know, it's like something like half of like curve tokens are already locked in for like, you know, some period of time. Right. So, it's there's actually active disincentive for people to go and go and, and, and use something else. So yeah, I, I think probably if, if, if JP Morgan were to do that, um, they're going to have to find some other like kind of slice of the market, which might be like, you know, compliant, like KYC, you know, trading or something like that. Like that's something where, you know, curve doesn't sort of have explicitly have a footprint in, um, that they'll probably, uh, they might be able to carve out and bring a lot of liquidity to in, in bootstrap. Yeah. And what's interesting about Frax, Curve, and Convex is, you know, they're all intertwined with each other, uh, you know, pretty deeply, whether, you know, mm-hmm. Convex owns a bunch of Frax and Curve. Uh, Frax has like a base pool uh, and all this vice versa. And this seems like the new way that it's not like exactly a merger per se, mm-hmm. but they're all like pretty integrated. Um, do you see this like kind of new development uh, in DeFi, you know, like just how things are going to operate going forward? Do you see like traditional mergers happening in the future? I think we've seen like a, a few attempts at mergers that didn't go well. Um, yeah. So like, how do you think of this like kind of like, con, you know, kind of this like Confederate system of like, oh, like you own a little bit, I have a little bit of that. We all complement each other really well. Yeah, 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 totally. Um, this is a this is a very interesting debate I have all the time with people. You know, it's sort of that sort of the the, the clean kind of like hypothetical example is like, what if you have three protocols that own all own a third of each other's tokens, right? Are they the, are they different protocols at that point? Or are they the same protocol? Um, mm-hmm. 
I tend to think, uh, I sus, well, we'll see. I'll su I suspect that at least for, you know, the next few years that we're not going to see a lot of mergers per se. Yeah. And the ones that we've seen sort of didn't really seem to work. Um, no. and I think, I think it like kind of concentrates the decision-making too much in a way that's like pretty incompatible for, for how DeFi works. Um, that being said, you know, at some point, if there are like 10 protocols that all own each other's tokens, it also becomes like somewhat inefficient. So it does seem like, you know, if they, if they are really truly uh, incentive aligned and the communities are incentive aligned as well, then you could imagine, you know, some type of like fusing of tokens at some point. Maybe um, some like DeFi SDR gets screwed. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, totally, totally. Yeah. So yeah, maybe you get some kind of wrapper token that is like a basket of all, all these things and, you know, having one of those gets you governance and everything. Um, you know, I do think there are, like at the end of the day, uh, I expect DeFi, like DeFi, I don't know what to call them. They're not like protocol, like protocols is too narrow. There are sort of these communities that form around these things that, I think eventually we'll like verticalize into every single type of financial service that, uh, that uh, they can offer. So, you know, DeFi, like Frax, you already started, you starting to see that, right? They have, they have a capital base. Um, but then there's landing and swapping and you know, all these other kinds of, and, and different types of stable coins and inflation, you know, hedging products and things like this. Um, you know, it, it's natural for any pool of capital to want to figure out how to monetize its capital in every which way it can. Um, and really it's a question of like, how do you fund the development of those things? And then how do you like kind of build the, the set of users around, you know, your products, right? And is that through just offering better products or is that through incentivization and, and bringing community members in that are like sort of long-term aligned to like support yeah. your, your economy, right? Yeah, so and so yeah. Um, yeah. What do you think is the key to building a uh, community and users? Um, actually, let me, you can finish your answer, but like uh, after that, can you answer that question? Yeah. Yeah. So what I was going to say is like, it's, it's a really interesting contrast to say, you know, one way to do it is to just fund the development of your own, you know, like Frax, I guess, you know, they could have, they could have built their own curve. They could have forked curve or whatever and, mm -hmm. and done their own thing. Um, but the other thing is like, if, if you actually have uh, revenue for your product, or your protocol, um, you can actually use that sort of economic power that you earn to like slowly gain control of another protocol, right? Like that, in my mind, that's what kind of Frax has done in a way is that like, you know, they use the fact that, oh, they have this capital base that they're able to monetize. Let's use that economic power to slowly, you know, acquire Curve and, and take over this, this system or have at least have enough of a vote in it. Um, uh, and so I, you know, Functionally, those two things might be equivalent and it might actually be, um, I think it might actually be human factors that decide which way we end up, right? Like, mm. is it actually better, you know, so one, one angle is like from a decentralization point of view, can you, is, is it a strong argument to say, well, there's actually three governance tokens here and they all can vote in their own way. And, you know, it's like nobody has single control because you can look at it and see that, um, or, you know, is it from, is it the fact that like, actually at the end of the day, you know, for Frax to win, it actually needs to bring the Curve community on board. And the way to do that is not by, you know, funding your own competitor, but actually saying, hey, we're going to work together and we're going to slowly acquire, you know, um, uh, 
you know, ownership of, of your token and essentially share economics with you, make ourselves value aligned so that at some end state, uh, basically curve and frax communities are like, you know, friendly with each other. They're, they're rowing in the same direction. Is that the, is that the right way to do it? Like, you know, we've never been able to like really, uh, account for ownership in such a micro level, uh, mm -hmm. through these tokens. Uh, and so, you know, it, it's hard to shake the thought for me that maybe governance tokens, like actually that's the superpower is that you can actually create all these micro alliances in a way that, um, that, you know, like a traditional entity structure with equity and shares or even governments, like there's no way to do that. Interesting. Yeah, basically you can layer the governance power on top of each other. And as you know, the community, not only like are economically aligned, but value aligned as well. It just seems like a natural fit and a natural alignment. Um, in a way, it's like not that much different than, you know, countries trading with each other, countries developing relationships mm -hmm. with each other. Yeah, totally. Yeah. yeah. So one, uh, one thing I was going to mention is that I, I do think one thing that's missing right now from sort of protocol to protocol relationships is that, um, you know, a lot of protocols have sort of a balance sheet or like a treasury. Um, and sometimes they hold other, um, some other protocols tokens, but a lot of times, uh, they don't like lock up those tokens in any kind of VE system. Now, I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure the Frax uh, curve is actually locked. I mean, it would make sense for it to be locked up because they want to control the, mm -hmm. the voting side of it. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I actually do think over the long term, you know, you said mergers before. Like I think before mergers, you have partnerships, and I think the token native way to express partnerships is actually the co-locking of oh. each other's like tokens over some period of time, right? Like that's actually what incentive, you know, that's, that's a way to make a promise on chain that says we're going to be incentive aligned for, you know, the next two years or four years or whatever. Right. And so yeah. I, you know, curve and frax kind of got there maybe somewhat naturally, but I don't think, I don't think there's like a curve balance of like VFXS, even though there's, you know, the other way around. Um, and so it's not even like fully formed there yet, but I, I think those are the things that are actually going to, uh, predate, you know, kind of full on mergers. Yeah. You need to have these, uh, steps ahead before you yeah. get on full on. Yeah. Back, yeah. A few months ago, I mean, it might've been more than a few months ago, time flies, uh, when, you know, Frax agreed, like when Frax got whitelisted for, to, you know, get CRV mm -hmm. and now they started, uh, locking for VCRV. So that happened, but yet it hasn't happened the other way around just yet. Yeah. Um, Rewinding a bit, I want to get back to my question mm -hmm. about users and community. Um, mm -hmm. What do you think is the key for DeFi protocols, especially like, and what do you think Frax and Curve has done so well to keep like users and community around? Like, yeah, there's always some hot new shiny toy, you know, at, that pops up on the timeline, but to like really like build and like dig in uh, to a, a protocol over the years and have like this loyal community around, it, it takes a little bit something more. It takes a, a little bit something more than just price. So like, what do you think like Frax and Curve have done so well in that regard? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think there's, I think there's a few things, uh, at least that I point to when I think about like Curve and Frax as, as case studies. Um, one is that they actually built something that was useful. <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's hard to, it's hard to get, it's hard to retain uh, enthusiasm and community around something that just like doesn't actually provide value. So, you know, that's sort of, mm -hmm. sort of a baseline thing, but people seem to forget that sometimes. Um, I think, uh, I, um, I think the, the couple other things that they did were they actually gave people a way to express 
long-term alignment with the protocol. So, you know, and this is in the form of this vote escrow stuff, right? Like, like the really interesting thing about vote escrow is that it lets the, the holder self differentiate into, I'm just here for, you know, <laughs> to dump yeah. versus like, I'm here for the long haul. And then, you know, again, the governance system rewards that, that sort of self-selection into different camps. Right. And so, you know, if you think about other types of protocols that don't have this, you're essentially saying that the economic risks and rewards for someone who is there to hold for a long time is the same as someone who's there as a mercenary, right? And if you do that, then usually the the, the economic sort of risks favor the mercenary rather than the, yeah. the long-term holder, right? And so I think like one, you know, the first key step is to just even have a way for people to express their long-term alignment and be able to reward them or be able to bring them into the community more deeply uh, because of that. So that's sort of one key ingredient. The other key ingredient, like I mentioned, is like you have to have something that's useful. But in this case, I also think it means that it's something that like generates revenue or has like a real, uh, real like economic um, substance to it, which then allows the, the third piece, which I think actually that gauges are like a really fascinating uh, mechanic for, for building this uh, type of community. And, and what you notice in like curve proposals, convex proposals, you know, frax proposals is that there's a ton of engagement because mm -hmm. there's actually like real dollars being allocated. You know, I think we, you know, we did the math at some point and there, you know, it's like, it's like, it's like millions of dollars a week of incentives across the frax gauge being, you know, uh, uh, distributed to these, um, you know, these liquidity pools and these protocols that are downstream, right? And so, you know, you're actually asking, you're, you're doing two things. You're saying, hey, community, uh, please help us make this economic decision. This is real dollars on the line, right? This isn't like, you know, uh, you know, what the logo should be, or like, you know, something yeah, like this. It's like, a, it's like real, so, so there's a lot, there, even just through financial interest, there's gonna be a lot of participants in that system because attracting frax incentives can really, you know, help another protocol, right? Um, but then it also did it in this way that said, hey, if you're long-term aligned with us, uh, we can, we'll actually give you more say in this thing, right? And so it creates this kind of natural flywheel, um, which, you know, this is mostly kind of what the Curve folks, uh, uh, you know, kind of pioneered. But I think, I think Sam and the Frax folks were like very early to realize, oh, actually this, this has a lot of positive network effects um, in terms of our community. And so that, you know, in the, when you go from the bull market to the bear market, you know, what has kept people around? Well, it's because, you know, I think it's because of two things. There's real economic decisions being made in this community, which, uh, which you know, gives you, gives you a reason to stick around. But I also think um, there's kind of this also self-reinforcing effect where now people can look on chain and say, actually, you know, I think both frac, both FXS and Curve have like 40% of their tokens locked up. So you can look at that and say, oh, actually, there's like a lot of long-term uh, holders <laughs> yeah. around around here. Um, and so I can also not only understand that right now it's important to participate in this, but that like a lot of people around me have made a long-term uh, commitment to this thing. And that that social proof doesn't exist in a lot of other protocols. This is the real Web3 social right there, expressing yeah. it on chain, honestly. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah totally. Yeah. It's like, it's like, you know, when you say you're friends with someone on Facebook, 
right? Uh, that's like a that's like a that's like a that's like a vote escrow of some sort. Right? <laughs> yeah. How committed are you to the friendship? Yeah, yeah, exactly, right. And then that's why they have this the relationship status, right? You know. Yeah. No. So, so Ken, um, you've said the word long term like quite a lot in the way you mm. express what you believe a community should be centered around. But I want to double click and then understand what are what does long term mean? Is it that maximum four year lock, or is it just more than this the one quarter of the narrative in crypto? Because obviously the space is very young and nascent. So. Mm. How do you think about the word long term, and do you think it's currently best expressed with a four-year maximum lock, or should it be more? Or is there a magic a different way here? to express it? Yeah, yeah. Well, okay. So when I say long term, I think about you know, I think about all the other sort of fundamental tech shifts that I've seen over my lifetime. You know, I, I am I, a, maybe a dwindling population of folks that remember like pre-internet, right? And I remember, you know, sitting there on my dial-up modem, like ordering something for the first time online. And I, I'm really going to date myself, but like prior to that kind of stuff existing, like, like if you wanted to order like, um, what was it? Like CDs, like, mu like music CDs, right? You got this like paper catalog, right? From, from the music company every month. And then there's a little form in the back where you would, you know, tear it out and write down all the numbers of the CDs that you wanted and include a check and send it to them over the mail. And then maybe like in a few weeks, you'd get this box full of CDs in it, right? And when you go from that to like, oh, I can just go to this website and type some stuff in and it like shows up, you know, and we use my friend's dad's credit card. And like that experience, this is like, you know, what, 1998 or something, right? This is like, you know, it, you're like, oh, this is, this is how everything is going to work in the future. But how long did it take? to get from that moment for me personally to like, you know, where everyone around me, even my parents, my grandparents, uh, take this for granted, that's a 20 year process, right? And so you see enough, and you know, it was the same thing for mobile, it was the same thing for social, like a lot of the folks that were there early could see where it was gonna go, but to actually get there is a decades long process. Um, crypto, you know, I suspect because, uh, you know, Finance has a lot of, you know, regulatory and, and these kinds of, you know, it's kind of the reason why a lot of nations exist today uh, or is like a core part of it. So I think unwinding a lot of that is probably going to even take longer. But uh, when I think of long term, those are the timescales that I'm, I'm thinking about. And, and when these things become truly valuable and truly a part of society and achieve the sort of scale that, that uh, we think about as technologists like that, you know, th those are decades in the, in the making. So, yes. Uh, in terms of long term, that's what I think about. Now, your specific question about whether four years is enough, I tend to think four years is just sort of an arbitrary limit. Um, mm -hmm. There is, you know, and, and I, I don't know, like, why, you know, the curve folks decided to stick with four years. I know that the VE curve contract gets, like, forked a lot. And so that probably just, you know, it's probably like that four-year thing is, like, propagating through uh, through uh, copy-paste. <laughs> um, yeah, maybe because of four-year cycles. Yeah, yeah. And and also like four years seems like an eternity in in <laughs> right. DeFi and crypto in general. So, you know, I, I I suspect that the at least for now that the diminishing returns beyond uh or, or like the like the the additional amount of risk that you're taking on by going beyond four years is probably like very diminishing. Uh and so it doesn't matter in practice. 
I suspect that as more things stabilize and this stuff becomes better understood, that yes, four years will not be enough. Like we have, you know, 10 year treasuries, we have 30 year treasuries, right? Like all these things are similar types of long-term commitments. And so I, I don't see why you wouldn't expect, expect a, a longer longer term kind of commitments, commitments to show up in you know, these crypto. If only there was some market to trade this locked commitment. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I wonder. Plug, <laughs> but um, um, I, I also wanted to, I saw your Twitter thread regarding this this locking and, and VE locking. And you mentioned mm -hmm. it's more than just the governance token could be locked, right? Like the actual liquidity in, you know, the pool providing for the protocol could be locked as well. And we see that with Frax. And I feel Frax is one of the earliest ones to pioneer mm -hmm. this lock liquidity. It's not protocol owned liquidity. It's definitely yeah. not, but it's, it's user lock liquidity into the protocol. Now, do, do you see that as a key when when compared to projects just airdropping tokens freely and completely without any um burdens and fully unlocked do you think projects should start adopting this say hey you should airdrop them locked or you should airdrop them as liquidity pool position but also locked and always yeah. aligning that back into this into the project yeah totally totally i think um i think most reward schemes we've seen you know module you know uh, accepting like some of the curve and frack stuff that seems to be working. I think uh, most of the stuff we've seen is like very, very like value misaligned, right? That, that's why we have mercenary liquidity. That's why we had this like crazy DeFi summer where, you know, people were just forking protocols left and right and, you know, emitting a bunch of tokens and then liquidity shows up and then it disappears, right? Like, because right. the incentive, the incentive models don't like, there's no reason to have the liquidity in there, putting it at risk, you know, at, at, at impermanent loss risk. Uh, if, if, uh, there's no rewards attached, attached to it. Right. And so, you know, and, and yeah, happy to, you know, happy that you guys brought up our I'm a big fan of uh, what, what Charlie's up to over there as well. But, um, that, um, you know, once you, once you start thinking about all this stuff, you, you actually kind of realize that like a lot of crypto and, and, uh, DeFi especially is premised on this sort of like in the moment thinking, right? It's like you get the token, all the tokens are like, you know, fully, uh, fully unlocked. Like, uh, and actually if you go back to ICOs, you can sort of see that thinking with ICOs as well, right? It's like, when we look back at ICOs, we're like, well, actually maybe like, you know, raising a bunch of capital and, and releasing a bunch of like unlocked tokens right at the beginning. <laughs> Uh, with no sort of like long-term incentive alignment was probably not, you know, uh, the right thing to do. Um, and you see the reaction to that was actually, you know, we actually fell back to more traditional structures like, you know, uh, SAFs and, and token vesting warrants schedules. and, and yeah. vesting schedules and things like that. Right. And so, you know, it, that ICOs to me were, were a moment where like, you know, DeFi kind of had to relearn the fact that actually, okay, you can, you could do this stuff on chain. But you're not going to change the human part of it, which is that people, you know, need long-term reasons to to stick around and, and keep paying attention to something. And so I feel like now we're starting to learn that with liquidity mining, with airdrops, with you know all these kinds of things, where what you you actually need to get people to take on some kind of risk if you're going to reward them, right? Um, Skin in the game. Yeah, exactly. And skin in the game is not just like liquidity that I can put in your protocol and just leave leave there and then pull out instantly whenever I want to, right? 
skin in the game is I'm going to make a bet on the future that the opportunity, like the that the uh, the benefits that I get from uh, earning, you know, some governance token for providing liquidity in this thing over a one year period, a two year period, is going to outweigh the opportunity cost of having that liquid or being able to put somewhere else, right? And Again, just in the same way that like VE curve or VE models allows governance token holders to express that long-term bet, locked liquidity in the frac style or in the hourglass style is going to allow people to do the same thing. And if you're a smart DAO on the other side of that, you're going to say, oh, you know what? I Why would I reward? Why would I treat the mercenary like liquidity providers the same as people that are willing to put this in for, you know, a few years? Because the... The, the, the long-term committers are way more valuable to me than these like short-term mercenary folks. And so, you know, I think we're going to see a lot of, you know, you know, quote unquote price discovery around uh, these types of things in terms of how, how DAOs think about incentivizing and bootstrapping their, their liquidity in the game. Yeah. Um, I think what's more even interesting is the ability for a crypto to allow these type of tiered yeah. level of commitments, right? But also one step further is what Charlie's doing that's enabling the market to decide like actually maybe I, I was four years committed but now i want to change back to being two years committed yeah and yeah. hence this ability to kind of slice and dice your decision up even further and yeah. kind of come in and change and put a price on it right yeah, i think exactly. that's the key part is being able to put a price on something now we've been going kind of deep into the benefits and the great things that come with a value alignment and locking things up, but what are some drawbacks? Can you think about this locking mechanism? Hmm. Um, I don't know. I, I guess I kind of see it as like, I mean, obviously you're taking on risk, right? So, so no one should, no one should be like sort of, you know, a four year locked token is a very, very different beast from a unlocked token. Um, if anything, you know, I, I think it is healthy for the ecosystem to have these things. DeFi definitely needs these things. Um, just, you know, I think I, I, I worry that every time some new type of primitive comes along, people don't really price the risk correctly in the beginning. And so mm -hmm. there probably is some, you know, situation where, uh, where, where some people are going to misprice the risk and end up on the wrong side of it. And maybe we'll give you a bad name. Um, you know, like a lot, a lot of times you see, uh, you know, I think, I think the kind of what place you see this right now is in the, in the FRAX governance, you see a lot of these kind of rage quit discussions, yeah. right? Yep. Um, and those are, those are people mispriced, mispricing that kind of duration risk, <laughs> these things, right? Um, yeah. and they committed too long and, and that's, you know, especially in a bull market, I think it's tough to, it's, you know, it's just human psychology to be, uh, overly optimistic about things. And so you might commit into things that, that you shouldn't. Um, so, but, you know, I mean, that's, but that's, that's also, that's also risk, right? So, uh, I think, I think the tech, the technology, the primitive itself is neutral, but, um, it's introduction into the ecosystem, uh, will again, take, take some learning period to figure out exactly how to price these things. Yeah. I want to go back to locks liquidity. Um, and I have a pretty interesting question and Kit, you're going to think I'm going to like do a little plot twist here. Um, so like I've, I've actually like grown to uh, like look at lock liquidity as a replacement for traditional fractional reserve banking. Like 
in the old system, traditional banks, because it was opaque and things were slower, you could have these like only like 10% of reserves and 90% lends out. But, mm. you know, since everything's on chain and everything's open, you can immediately see those reserves not there and then people panic and then you, you know, you mm. see all these like on-chain bank runs. But with locked liquidity, that guarantees, um, you know, at least, a, you know, there to be, you know, trades happening or like the ability to trade and, you know, gives this ability, you know, for protocols to maybe be like a little bit under collateralized, just like maybe just like a little bit. So I'm, but what my question is, is like in the future, if DeFi and stablecoins get more mature and there's like, you know, and it actually becomes, you know, much more mainstream and there's hundreds of billions, if not trillions of dollars of stablecoins in circulation, would it be possible to have, you know, a stablecoin maybe like a little under collateralized? Maybe it doesn't have to be like backed by, you know, the governance token, but maybe it could be backed by like ETH or maybe by like something else, maybe even the government, who knows? Um, I guess like that's up to the market to decide, but because of like the, the nature of, of locked liquidity acting as, you know, the, you know, as the substitute for like fractional reserve banking. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. I mean, so the way I actually think about that question is, is, is a slightly broader one, which is that do you think in the future a on-chain fiat coin will exist, right? Because if you think about what like US dollar does is it has, you know, in theory, some backing assets, you know, everything that, you know, secured by the US military, I guess, at, at yeah. some level. Um, but, you know, through inflationary mechanisms or through uh, through quantitative easing uh, or, or debasement or, or monetary policy, there is some leverage being taken on that core set of assets, right? And the assumption is that you're not going to get mass redemptions such that, you know, <laughs> everyone tries to get out of dollars and like we're all, you know, sitting around like holding property or I don't know whatever you end up with, right? Or gold bars or with but um yeah so but that but that 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 uh that idea that a set of people can come together and agree to a monetary policy that has that little bit of leverage built into it is nothing unique to off-chain or on-chain right mm -hmm. and so if you can get 300, you know, once everybody is on, has wallets and is on chain and is participating in these economies, will we see some economy that says, well, you know, we have a capital base of, you know, however many assets and maybe we own real estate in all the different countries and, you know, it's this network state or whatever and say, we want to actually print more, I don't, I don't know what the, we want to print more apologies than, than, <laughs> and, than, than we, than we can account for in terms of our assets. But we think that's okay because there isn't going to be this mass redemption, you know, and we, we're going to do it in this controlled way. And maybe it's governed by a smart contract or some DAO or whatever. Like that's essentially recreating a fiat system on top of, you know, uh, on top of a blockchain, you know, yeah. platform. Right. I don't see why that wouldn't happen in the future. I, I, that seems like an inevitability as well. It's just that, you know, we, we, we've got to, you yeah, know, go through a, a few steps. steps. Yeah. yeah. Right now we're, we're still at a point where like most of society doesn't actually, you know, have the same trust equation when it comes to smart contracts and things like this. So if you, you know, it's, it's one thing for them to get over the fact that they have to trust this weird technology that everyone, you know, a bunch of like, you know, nerds seem excited about to, you know, then going saying, okay, well, we trust the technology you know, and we trust the financial aspect of this. So like, let's introduce a little bit of this leverage and, you know, maybe that's, maybe that's good for, 
an economy or not. But, mm-hmm. you know, I, I just think we're like, you know, we're, we're too early for to have those conversations today. But we're going to get there. I, I, I think it's in human nature to get there. Yeah, um, that's going to be really interesting. Just central banks cryptographically printing on-chain directly. There's no off-chain wrapping. You have to deal with any... No, it's all on-chain. That's the future that I'm looking forward to. Not mm-hmm. just even with stable coins, but with like housing deeds, contracts, like everything. Like it'll yeah. just make everything so much easier because I, I view like the idea of wrapping as like so much legal and regulatory weight that it's like, it's hard to, you know, be like too bullish on it. I mean, I know things are being like worked out, but uh, I guess this is what leads me to say is like, do you believe that, you know, what's your take on real world assets? Do you think real world assets will have to be the same and everything would be like, have to be cryptographically signed on chain? I think eventually, yes. But, mm-hmm. you know, how that actually manifests in terms of like people's daily lives, you know, I, I also think we're probably going to end up in a place where, you know, a lot of the solutions are what we would call like custodial solutions. Yeah. Like, just like there's a piece of paper down at city hall that says I own the property that I'm, you know, sitting at right now. Uh, you know, if, if we're okay with that, then probably in terms of the risk parameters, people will be okay with city hall, you know, holding a bunch of like, you know, seed phrases or I, I don't know what it, what it ends up looking like, but right. Like something like that. Right. So like there's going to be a delegation of the custody aspect uh, to something that I think. Uh, oh, absolutely. Yeah. So I think, but in terms of, how we decide how we like what ledger we use as the like source of truth for who owns what. Yeah. I think all this stuff is going to go on chain eventually. It's just like, it makes so much more sense, right? It's so much more flexible. It's digital. It enables all these kinds of interesting downstream use cases. Um, what do you think the timeline a, is for us getting there? Oh, decades. Decades. Okay. Yeah. So we're literally, yeah. 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 So we're, yeah. so we're like, everyone's like, Oh, we're in like 1995, 1999. No, we're in like 1980 something. Yeah, I mean, well, it depends on which, which you know, particular endpoint you're comparing yourself to. But um, yeah. yeah, I mean, like, I think, you know, it's, it's like, oh, if yeah. you think about all the things that you need to need to happen before this, this can, and, 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 you know, kind of to your question about real world assets, you know, I also tend to think that this stuff doesn't like, we've seen these experiments of like, oh, bring the real estate online or, or on site on chain, or like bring this asset on chain. Um, those things are those things are like cool proofs of concept, but I think we've yet to figure out there's got to be some real world asset that's actually, uh, it's really difficult to create a market for in TradFi, but it is, but it, but it is valuable to have a market for it. Right. And so there might be things like, Oh, like, you know, the trading of this asset is like really international and cross jurisdictional. And so it's really hard to understand like who owns what, or like how to, how to even like, you know, send the money back and forth or settle these trades. Like there's got to be something that has those properties where you can say, even if it's like a, you know, relatively inefficient market on chain, the fact that it exists is actually already valuable and people will like flock to it and, and use it. Um, or, or, you know, like, or maybe that the capital that's already on chain doesn't have access to that particular asset type um, uh, in through any other means. Um, and therefore, uh, you know, you just get this natural product market fit. And so I actually think the, f- the first place that this is going to happen is T-bills, right? Mm, right. Yeah. Yep. In, in, in a low rate environment, nobody cares that like, you know, Circle has a bunch of, is a bunch of sitting on a bunch of T-bills and like, you know, earning 0.2%. That seems fine as sort of like a custody fee. Suddenly when they're earning four and a half percent and there's like dollars 
trapped on chain, like suddenly people care, right? So it's, you know, and, and, and this is just, you know, something that I've seen a lot of teams uh, uh, running at right now, but mm -hmm. obviously a regular, regulatorily very murky how this is going to yeah. work, but whoever figures it out, you know, there's probably tens of billions of dollars sitting on chain that wants access to, you know, US, US backed yield and just has no way to do it right now. Right. So that's going to be like a, I think that's going to be like a pretty big adoption curve. All the other ones, you know, it, like we're probably going to have to see uh, uh, things emerge on chain that feel more like toy use cases that then eventually uh, prove to be useful for real world assets. So one of, one of, one of the things that I, I always talk about is, you know, we have monkey JPEGs, right? We have these like funny things that seem totally like a toy, but uh, you know, they're, they're, they're worth like a, re you know, a non-trivial amount of money. And more importantly, like the, the desire to trade and lend against and do all these things with those types of assets has created market infrastructure around this type of asset. Right. Mm -hmm. And so once you figure that part out and maybe you also figure out that you can put it on L2 to make it relatively cheap, you know, once you de-risk all that stuff, then that's where something like a, you know, tokenized real estate or like tokenized something else can actually come on chain and be like, look, all the technology aspects of this thing have been de-risked. Uh, and so it's actually now when we, when we compare uh, how we're going to represent these assets, are we going to keep continue to do it at pieces of paper on city hall or like on chain? Like that's where the, the, that decision becomes an easier one to sort of go in the on chain direction. Right. Yeah, it's like the monkey JPEGs are, you know, kind of our test run built and we yeah, don't really exactly, around exactly. it. And I've actually said to Kit before, hey, the most successful real world asset on chain, USDC, Tether. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. Yeah, it is. It is totally. I mean, like like if you look at if you look at what a tokenized real estate is, it's some company that's holding holding a deed, right? And just 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 like a circles holding dollars in a bank. Right. And Ken, so on this topic of TradFi, I want to ask you, do you think there is a place for CDFi or is CDFi simply a or centralized DeFi mm -hmm. is a transitional period right now that we, we kind of need them to get us over to the other side when everybody has their own wallet and everybody's self-custody? Yeah, so I think that goes back to, I mean, in the really long term, I think that goes back to what I said a little bit earlier. It's like, I don't know that we end up with like self-custody for everyone, right? Um, right. You know, lacking some, maybe some like biometric like implement or like, you know, some some biological implant or something like that, that you like they stick in you when you're born or something mm -hmm. like, you know, but even that has, you still have some trust assumptions, right? So I think most like, like, unless you believe in the total, like everyone for themselves, kind of like libertarian anarchy kind of world. Like, I just, I just don't think like, I think humans are like, have kind of moved past that version of the world. So that means that, you know, a lot of your life, uh, a lot of the things that you achieve in your life, you do in your life has some trust assumptions built into it. And, you know, I think a lot of those trust assumptions are going to continue to be around money and custody and things like that. I mean, honestly, it, it like, you know, it's it's cool to be able to self custody, but it also kind of sucks, right? <laughs> like you have to no, work it about sucks. It. <laughs> Super sucks. Right? Yeah. So so like you know, I, and so I think that that that's not going to completely go away. It's always going to be this trade off. And so to the extent that there is a market 
for custodial services, uh, you know, uh, I think that will always exist. Companies will form or organizations will form to serve that need. And, you know, I think you can point at that and say, you know, in the long term, that's what really CDFI is. Um, you know, whether, you know, I also think um, it's interesting. Uh, it, it's interesting to think about this stuff on a spectrum. I think in in economies or marketplaces where there is a trust relationship, generally the marketplace is more efficient, right? And so in the same way that, oh, like moving dollars from one bank account, or sorry, one account in a bank to another account at that same bank is really fast and cheap, you know, because there's a lot of trust assumptions built in there that make that fast and cheap versus, you know, me sending you uh, uh, USDC, especially in the last few days, <laughs> being very expensive, um, you know, but that that's the trade-off, right? Like whenever you have more trust around a system, the system can use those trust assumptions to be more efficient. And the, the more trustless you go, uh, you know, it's going to become more expensive because that it's precisely those economics that like are, are allowing you to create the trustlessness of that, that system. Right. And so I think that spectrum will always exist. And so, you know, uh, OTC, like one trading desk and another trading desk, you know, want to settle some OTC trade and maybe, you know, they have like a two day grace period because they've traded a lot with each other and they trust each other. Like, I don't think those types of human, essentially human relationships are going away. And so, you know, as long as those things kind of exist, um, the, uh, I think a lot of these financial transactions will only, uh, take on as much trustlessness as they need to. That's like sort of the, you know, the economic way to think about that. And so if there are trust relationships that exist in the world, then there's, there ought to be a lot of transactions that still, um, take advantage of that. And so that's my sort of like long-term, you know, uh, uh, framework for thinking about like the coexistence of CDFI and, and DeFi. But on the other side of that, DeFi, you know, the platforms are getting better. We're getting L2s. We're going to get L3s eventually. You know, the, the, the spectrum of trust assumptions become different. So, you know, if, if L3 has a, if an L3 has a centralized sequencer that like, you know, rolls up to a decentralized L2, which rolls up to a decentralized L1, and you're doing a transaction on the L3, is that CDFI? I mean, you know, you start you start right, to get into a lot of gray areas. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so I, I, I think uh, I think that particular question is a question of like the moment that we're in today. But I don't know that the boundary is going to be nearly as uh, as clear uh, going forward. Yeah, going back to DeFi and going back to Frax, uh, mm. you guys are quite powered users of Frax, and you guys pay attention to governance. How you knew about the uh, rage quit discussions going on? So I'm just wondering, um, you know, as users of Frax and being part of the community, uh, what's your feedback about it? Um, you know, what do you like about it? What do you think can be improved? Um, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I think, I, you know, this is something that I've, I've communicated to Sam at, at, at several points as well. Um, I think there's probably still a bit of ways to go on the governance side. Um, mm -hmm. There's, uh, you know, there was some, there was some uh, discussion, I think, last year at some point around the multi-sig, things like mm -hmm. that. Um, generally speaking, as protocols scale up, I think there's just, as almost like a social contract with the community that you're interacting with, you need to like button up on the governance side. And I know they're working on it, so, you know, <laughs> um, 
that's uh that's all great and all but like that that sort of feels like you know sort of the next step of maturity for the the frax ecosystem to for everyone to be able to say hey look you know there's like a multi a multi-sig involved but like there's a you know maybe a dow token like override or you know some something where you can you can credibly point at it and say hey this thing is like uh you know truly uh decentralized control uh among the token holders um and then you know i think um I think another area is like it's easy for people, you know, this this like this kind of curve and curve wars and this type of game is really fascinating and, and fun to play in. But I think it's easy to kind of get caught up in that a little bit um, and and lose sight of the 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 final goal, which is actually to have whether it's FRAX, you know, the USD FRAX or FRAX ETH or whatever the FPI or you know whatever the next thing they come up with, to actually have that be used everywhere and to, for people to feel like this is the best way to hold dollars or this is the best way to hold ETH. the risk-free like, asset. Yeah, that's the that's the ultimate goal, right? And so um, you know, I think this is probably more feedback for the community, maybe, but like. You know, keeping keeping our eyes on the on that goal and thinking about what are incentive programs or partnerships or things that we can build towards you know driving them. We have this amazing economic engine to incentivize that, mm -hmm. but um, you know that's the long term game, right? And so there is there is a risk that uh, you know if we get too caught up in the kind of like fancy tokenomics of of the of the short term that we kind of miss the forest for the trees um, and end up in a place where uh, a more long-term oriented protocol might actually uh, build the, the truly lasting uh, value proposition that, that FRAX is trying to build. Yeah, so what are those um, you know, in implementations and incentive programs that FRAX could do to uh, increase its, uh, I think the de definition is monetary premium, people holding FRAX for the sake of FRAX, yeah. FRAX for the sake of FRAX. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, I, th I think the gauges are like a big part of it. I, I don't see the same amount of um, like, like, like curve just seems like, you know, if you're doing any kind of stable asset or pegged asset, like curve is just like, you have to, you have to go do that. Right. Every, like all the founders that I talk to are like, yeah, like we're going to go set up a curve pool and we're going to get on the gauge and blah, 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 blah. Like that, like Frax hasn't been elevated into the mind share to like, to to the same degree right and even though like oh if you get on like you know fraxland or frax swap and you can like you know incentivize liquidity there you can start to play this similar game uh, with these things but for whatever reason you know we haven't we haven't quite gotten there um that probably has to do with some of it with frax sorry with curve being there first uh, and having a more broadly distributed community um but you know, I, I suspect that like if if the uh, if the community could somehow reach out to a lot of protocols and make this value proposition to them, just in the way that like you know, I think uh, a lot of during the last year, you know, 2021, 2022, there were a lot of conversations about Frax being sort of the de facto stablecoin on like an alternate like a EVM compatible chain, right? Like mm -hmm. those are the types of partnerships. Those are the types of opportunities to like be the first liquidity in for you know something that's that's taking off um uh to really like cement your like 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 value proposition as a as a stable coin as a source of liquidity um and so you know maybe maybe it's like the DeFi 
or maybe it's the crypto bear market in general that like there's not as many opportunities like this but i think going forward like this is the this is the strategy that the community needs to kind of like internalize as a whole if it wants to see this thing really work over the long term otherwise we're just kind of shuffling ownership around through these like tokenomics um schemes and you know maybe we might end up in a situation where like yeah essentially curve and frax are are um are merged but without that sort of monetary premium without that uh uh, desire to hold fracks like it kind of is meaningless at the end of the day yeah i'm reminded of uh, olympus and its forks in 2021 where they did actually just hold fracks for the sake of it being fracks mm-hmm. uh, they had massive treasuries hundreds of millions of dollars in fracks um and in fracks once olympus had fracks in their treasury hell became the de facto uh, stable coin of all these home forks yeah. uh, i wonder and you bring a good point with the uh, new chains coming online like you know Maybe Frax, if Frax is like early there, you know, it becomes like the stablecoin for that chain and the chain grows, it grows along with it. So it's, you know, bringing along partnerships there. Uh, yeah, there's, you know, there's a lot of work to be done. I really, well, Frax does have the uh, Fra- the Weath replacement program for Frax ETH. I wonder if they can mm-hmm. do something similar for like Frax. Um, and that will probably come out uh, after Frax v- V3. And uh, which leads me to my next question. Can you give us any hints on Frax V3? Have you heard any murmurs anything <laughs> through the grapevine? Um, I, I have, uh, Sam has dropped a few hints to me, but uh, one of the things that we we be very, we try to be very careful as uh, investors and in things is to mm-hmm. not steal the team's thunder. So of course. Um, I will, uh, I will let, uh, I will let him uh, release those, those bits of information um, as, uh, as he sees fit. Um, but I, I will maybe just echo sort of one thing that I said earlier is that I do think the natural trend for DeFi protocols is vertical integration. Um, as soon as you have a capital base, like I said, you, you want to monetize it in every way, which way is possible. And, and so I expect, you know, whatever V3 is, uh, it will end up building some new primitives, some new ways to monetize the capital that the Fax protocol controls. Um, and you know, whether, what that looks like exactly, I'm not even sure of yet, but you know, that's, that's the natural trend for all these things. Um, and so I would not be surprised if, if, you know, they come up with some, you know, new protocol that is a way to use the dollars that Frax owns or that ETH that Frax controls to, to generate more revenue. Uh, yes, go ahead. I I just want to ask, uh, Ken, is there an area in crypto DeFi that you feel that you want Frax to explore a bit more, but, you know, currently Frax hasn't like, for example, the eigenlayer, uh, eigenlayer and restaking kind of side of things. Um, anything that pops into your mind that you wish you see more Frax action on? Fraction. <laughs> Fraction. Yeah. Um, you know, I th- I think they're going after a, a, something that's already like huge anyway. So I I would probably have the the inverse reaction, which is inverse free reaction. I don't know <laughs> um, that uh, that I wouldn't want them to spread themselves too thin. Mm-hmm. Um, I think playing like the you know obviously the stablecoin market is still the USD stablecoin market is still enormous, and I think we're just scratching the surface of that. Um, the, the the ETH liquid staking derivative, the ETH stablecoin market is also going to be huge, and we're still uh, scratching the surface of that. So, like honestly, if they nail those two things, 
um, it's already, they're going to then have a lot of flexibility to go into whatever they want. So, you know, uh, and, and, you know, I, I think, I think the fraction kind of, uh, you know, to your earlier question of like one of the, one of the drivers of their success, I think is also focusing on the right market, right? Like stable coins, they're hard, but if you get them right, there's just like absolutely enormous markets. And that's why we still continue to see them at the top. You know, if you think of Maker and, and Frax and then Curve sort of, you know, being at the top of, uh, uh, of DeFi Llama, like there's, that's no coincidence, right? Like a lot of people want USD. Um, and so keeping your eye on the, on the big market and figuring out what you can do there is, you know, uh, for any kind of entrepreneurship is, is a key part of um, being successful. Yeah. So going out like, you know, maybe like two years, five, four years from now, um, where do you see DeFi and where do you see Frax within it? Yeah. Well, I mean, there's, you know, there's hopes and dreams and then <laughs> there's, uh, uh, there's what might actually happen. You know, I think DeFi will, I, I'm excited for DeFi to continue to explore what I feel like are truly like native, you know, crypto primitives. So like we were just talking about with, with Hourglass and, and Vodescrow, I think this idea that you can express a statement, a, a, some promise about the future and have this platform that like enforces it in a neutral way is actually like a really crypto native thing. Right. It's like, how would you do that in, in TradFi, right? You got to have some contract, you got to have some counterparty, the counterparty goes away. Then what happens? You know, like my, my house mortgage at First Republic Bank, what happens when, you know, JP Morgan takes over the, like, there's all these like weird kind of questions that, that, you know, that go away when you do it as smart contracts. Um, and so, you know, these, uh, I, I think we're still scratching the surface on some of these like really native constructions in DeFi. Um, and so I, you know, and it, I, I'll be the first to say, I'm not gonna be able to predict, mm -hmm. you know, 90% of these, but I know they're coming, right? Because, <laughs> because they're, they're, because now people are starting to think of not just about, oh, like, you know, it, we've gone through all the startups of like, well, let's, you know, that thing exists over there. So let's try to build it on chain. We've gone through a lot of those ideas. And now people are realizing, oh, actually, uh, you know, here's, here's the DeFi native thing, or here's what DeFi needs right now. Let's build this one piece. And oh, it turns out that we can generalize this thing uh, mm -hmm. into a bunch of different use cases. So, um, so that's, uh, that's sort of DeFi in general. Um, you know, the big, I think the big sort of external factors, kind of what happens around the regulatory side of things. And, you know, we don't have to go deep into that, but I think uh, in terms of where it happens, who's actually building it, who actually benefits from it? Those are all very open questions uh, in this space. Um, in terms of Frax in general, you know, like 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 if they can figure out like uh, how to scale the the liquidity in both Frax and and Frax ETH, I think it's going to be an amazing spot. Right? Like that's yeah. <laughs> that's like that again. That market is so big that if you can just be you know a top one or two player in in those markets, like that's already. Yeah. Let alone one thing, but both things like, yeah, yeah. Shit. And if it becomes the, if it becomes the de facto way of like expressing any kind of stable coin and this sort of stable coin maximalist kind of way of thinking, like that's, you know, <laughs> that's like, that's like hundreds of other asset types that work that way. So, yeah. 
Yeah. Speaking speaking of building, uh, we're gonna have a Frax hackathon pretty soon. Frax build that just got approved through governance. Uh, and I'm wondering if you have any ideas of things you would like to see built in the Frax hackathon. I've been talking to a few people, talking to the team, talking to others. You know, some people say, oh, maybe you can build like some options market. Maybe you can build like more infra for devs. Maybe you can build more front ends. Like, what would you like to see built in the Frax hackathon? Yeah, I think um, I think more front ends would certainly help. Um, that's just help. That's just helpful from kind of decentralization in general. Um, I do think uh, Curve plus Frax, like if you want to really get into the little depths of it, it's pretty impenetrable for like more, no more most normal people right now. Uh, <laughs> we so, know. Yeah. yeah. So I think there's that aspect of it. Um, even like, you know, we have things like yield aggregators, right? Mm -hmm. But I think most yield ag aggregators are kind of focused around like USDC, right? Like, or, or ETH. Um, you know, what if someone built a Frax yield aggregator, right? Like, where is the best place to put my Frax right now to earn rewards, right? Where is the liquidity most needed? Like, how do I combine all these different, um, all these different uh, incentive programs that between Convex and Frax and all these kinds of things? uh to, to optimize where i put stuff um you know what does that end up looking like for fraxy I, I think we probably haven't really gotten there yet um but to the extent that uh this becomes a bigger and bigger ecosystem with a lot of choices that users have to make uh having uis and and, and products that help them make that choice i think makes it a lot easier for folks that are interested in the ecosystem to come in and actually sort of be helpful and productive. Mm. Um, that's probably like a big area. I think there's probably some things around, you know, stake frax ETH and, and doing some like more interesting derivatives on top of that. And one, one of the things that uh, I've heard a couple times recently is this idea of having kind of DeFi, like covered options positions where the collateral is some kind of yield generating asset. Um, mm -hmm. That's like a really, again, interesting version of, Rehypothecating some, you know, collateral asset uh, that uh, maybe is maybe it's like the DeFi way that we do, you know, cross margin, right? Um, which is like an important thing in, in options. Um, and so maybe there's something along those lines, but th those that kind of stuff tends to get pretty in the weeds really quickly. And I think there are probably simpler things, you know, especially if you're talking about for a hackathon, that uh, would just like make it easier for people to like participate. Yeah, make it easier to participate. And you bring up a good point of like. You know, Frax and Curve, they're hard to un understand. Like, it's not like you walk in day one, and you're like, oh, yeah. I get it. It takes, you know, it kind of takes, on, you know, this interdisciplinary approach, where, whether it's like understanding how money works, understanding how the world on chain works, and then yeah, years yeah. of experience. It's a whole thing. So um, how do you think we get more people educated in this regard of like how Frax works? Like, what do you think is the way to go? And like, how can we get people to develop, you know, the same conviction levels as, you know, as we all share around Frax. Yeah. Um, well, I think, you know, stuff like what you're doing is, is certainly helpful, kind of putting out educational materials. I think, um, I think in general, like crypto projects and especially DeFi projects don't think about user onboarding very much. And what is, what is the journey to go <laughs> from like, you know, normie to like Frax, you know, DJ, right? Like, like, <laughs> Like, and, and, you know, 
for a long time, I think it was somewhat okay because I think DeFi in general, its real value prop was that it 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 sort of um, it offers a set of like high risk, high reward opportunities that you know maybe are hard to find equivalents in, in TradFi, right? And so I think for places that have capital controls, places that have uh, you know uh, barriers to entry in those types of asset exposures like DeFi was a place that you could come in and do that. And so when you have that, then the sufficiently motivated folks that want exposure to those types of opportunities will figure out wallets and all this kind of stuff, right? But as we sort of move down the food chain or up the food chain, whichever direction you think about it, um, there's going to be less, like the people that are coming in are going to be less and less motivated, less, less sort of like, Mm -hmm intrinsic motivation to adopt something. You see this in any product, right? The first organic users, early adopters, they have some real reason to use the thing. And so they'll come and use your crappy product uh, Mm -hmm. because they get a lot of value out of it. You know, as you sort of go down that, that tail to to users that are like, well, you know, maybe I'll use it because my friends are using it, or maybe I'll use it because, you know, like I sort of heard it's better than this other thing, but I don't really understand why, you know, those are the types of users where like you, you really need to reduce the friction to onboarding and make it as, as simple as possible uh, for them to, to get engaged. And, you know, most DeFi protocols are just not at this stage yet. Like, it's just, right. it just takes, it just takes a lot um, to get there. Um, there was another part of your question that. Oh uh, yeah. I, I said, uh, you know, what do you think it will take? And I think you partly answered it. Uh, what do you think it will take for you, uh, you know, get people to develop the same conviction level as, you know, all of us. Oh, oh right, 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 right. Yeah. So, you know, I think, I think, um, conviction's a tough one because it's not just about what Fraxis, right. Mm-hmm. It's about everything else that you know. Right. Mm. So, you know, in my case, it's, you know, the hundreds of founders that I've talked to, it's, it's the hundreds of DeFi protocols that I've, you know, seen tried and, you know, most of them don't really go anywhere. You know, it's having a perspective on the market, uh, you know, having a perspective on regulatory, all these kinds of things, all those things combine uh, to make me sort of see, you know, specific attempts, specific projects, specific founders, specific markets as being particularly interesting. And that's where conviction for me comes from. So, you know, without all that context, I can't evaluate some particular design or some approach, you know, from, from the next, I can't differentiate the two. And therefore, you know, why would I be more into one or the other? But, um, you know, so, so I do think a lot of this is actually, uh, you know, one is just providing the direct value prop. Like, you know, if, uh, you know, uh, if, if Frax actually does end up becoming the best way to express dollars on chain, then the value prop will be obvious. Like if it's the, you know, if, for anything that you want to trade into, it's the easiest to actually just hold Frax, and because the the markets against all the other assets are the deepest in Frax. Like if you if you get to these properties, then it will be self evident, and the value pop will speak for itself. You know, let alone some of the network effects that come out of that. Um, but I think a lot of you know outside of that is actually helping people understand why the Frax team or the Frax mechanism is special, like, you know, what do they need to, like, usually it's like people need to understand something new about the world that they don't understand already to understand why crypto is important, right? And then 
once they get over that hump, like, okay, well, you know, between Tether and USDC and Frax and Maker, like why is, you know, what are the things that you need to understand to see that Frax is actually the, you know, one of the more interesting constructions of this stuff. Um, so I, I think it's that, I think it's actually building that context with people that then naturally leads them to have conviction in the same things that you do. Yeah. And it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's less, you know, it's less about just explaining what the thing is, because if they can't evaluate it in context and it, there's, it's about everything you know, around it. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's, it's sort of like how you see the world, right? Like yeah. if you think the world is going to go in a certain direction, then you will naturally have more conviction about things that you see, you think are aligned with the way that the world is going. And, and speaking of the way the world is going, I want to zoom out a bit away from Frax, away from DeFi and kind of look at crypto as a whole. For you right now, what is the one thing that you feel folks in the crypto space are ignoring that you are excited about? Hmm. Um, this gets back to some of the some of the hourglass conversation, but I think uh, I think like tokenomics sort of has like a bad rap right now. I've actually talked to a lot of founders that are very skeptical of it right now. They saw a lot of, um, you know, they saw on the, on the Ethereum side, there's, there was a lot of like, you know, oh, DeFi summer, like didn't work, like liquidity mining doesn't work kind of conversation. Um, if you kind of go into like the Solana realm, like people are like really allergic to it over there right now. And, you know, because a lot of the tokenomics schemes for some of those protocols were like very, uh, very short-term oriented, right? And with, with, you know, predictable results. So I think, you know, aside from being in a, in a crypto bear market right now, I feel like we're in a tokenomics bear market, mm -hmm. but actually like, I think tokenomics is like one of the superpowers of crypto, right? Like the fact that we can express these funny bespoke, uh, long-term incentive, you know, agreements, co-incentivizations of things and uh, do them in these like very like micro and, and automatically enforced ways. Like that seems like a superpower to me. And the fact that people are kind of bearish on it feels like you're, you're like, you know, why are you even building here? If that's like not the, right. that's not the yeah. thing that you're gonna, you're gonna use, right? This is literally the thing that this platform can do that nothing else can, right? Um, and so I, I continue to be very excited about um, uh, crypto, uh, sorry, tokenomic innovations. That's what I'm very excited about hourglass and, and these types of things. But yeah, I mean, I, I, I wish there were, you know, a hundred times the people thinking about this, uh, and excited about this, because I think that's where a lot of the innovation is going to come. And, and, you know, like part of that is I've also seen, I've also lived through kind of the open source movement, right? It's one of the other big technological shifts that we see in space. And, and open source really showed that like a lot of this software technology becomes commoditized. And I really expect, especially in DeFi, that the same thing will happen. You know, whoever builds the best AMM construction, eventually everybody's going to be using it. Whoever builds the best lending construction, everybody's going to be using it. So it's all open source already anyways, right? So, um, so then what is the thing that actually, uh, actually like makes anything defensible? Okay. I think it's going to be community and long-term alignment and like this kind of uh collective risk taking uh to, to say that we're going to congregate around this particular set of protocols or that particular set of protocols this governance token you know this 
this uh, treasury, whatever it is. Um, and the thing that underpins all of like growing those kinds of communities is the tokenomics, right? So, um, so if I if I think about it over over the long term, you know, like folks that are just focusing on on primitives right now, like oh, we can build this new type of marketplace or you know whatever, like that's great, it's cool math, awesome technology. Uh, I think I, I have trouble seeing them work over the long term mm -hmm. uh, because they're missing the most important piece. Okay, I have a question for DAOs. Do you think uh, you know participation and governance is better expressed with tokens or with NFTs? And I'm not talking about like fracks. I'm talking about like more like your social DAOs and other like form for formations of people on chain. Yeah, uh, I, I mean, like you see at the, the end, of, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think at the end of the day, like DAOs will be such a generic concept that the answer is going to be both. It, it, that you know, it's it's sort of like a false dichotomy uh, at this point. Um, certain types of financial things where you know it's it's something's on a continuous scale, and you need to be able to like express votes easily in a very kind of like high granularity. Probably fungible tokens make more sense, mm -hmm. but there are certainly lots of things already even in in the real world which are sort of membership based, or you know maybe only want a hundred or a thousand or you know uh, some limited number of set of people that can come in. Um, I think for those type of things, like something that probably looks like an NFT, uh, ends up mm -hmm. being more being more useful. Now I'm gonna do a fun little experiment. Rick. Hypothetically, what could a flywheel token look like? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it's interesting because like most of what you guys do is like pretty off chain. Yeah, um, and so really, it would suggest to me that uh, there's some kind of like coordination aspect to what you guys do mm -hmm. that, and we do have a treasury so yeah that. yeah yeah so you know like ultimately like i think your guys's like value is distribution right like but mm -hmm. for people coming uh you know, as you build your audience um coming on the show you know being able to talk to your audience has value uh and so if you most of i think tokens that work work because you're taking something of value and letting the token holders control it, right? And so in your case, if your main value proposition is the distribution, then if there's a way you can set up token holders to be able to control that distribution, like maybe decide who comes on the show or like, you know, these types of things, um, that's where, uh, that's where, you know, something like that might work, but it's the fact that you're doing it off chain, you know, makes it sort of like there's there's a lot of trust assumptions built into like, yeah. well, okay, it, just because we vote on a snapshot, does that mean, you know, Dave's actually going to bring this person off? You know, like, that's like a big trust assumption. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, I would probably suggest that, like, at least it's not one of the initial use cases that I would think of as like being particularly yeah. suited for a token. Someday, you know, I suspect most things are going to have this property. And maybe there'll be some way uh, for you to express on chain through a smart contract that you're going to have this person on your show and you get like slashed if you don't do that or, you know, something like that, right? But <laughs> yeah. until we get there, like, I, I you know, I, it's, there's not like a ton of benefit of yeah. uh, doing it on chain today. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. I, I thought it was a fun little experiment. Yeah. But I think, you know, if you have like membership NFTs and like just kind of do it for fun, like that's, that's sort of the beginning of something, right? And so yeah. um, I, I think uh, if... If, uh, if you're able to act, if, if you're able to construct it in the right way and you get a lot of enthusiasm around owning these things and that uh, allows you to grow your audience in a way that 
traditional marketing channels or traditional growth tactics uh, have un been unable to do. Um, that's where that's where potentially becomes interesting, even if it's yeah. not fully off chain and verifiable and et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I actually this year I've joined two organizations uh, with NFTs. One was Crypto Nomads because mm -hmm. I travel a lot and they do a phenomenal job, honestly. Like they host these like dinner, these ramen DAO dinners. You get like, a, you buy like a sub DAO NFT and you go, you meet like my, I was like, wow, this is pretty cool. There's a group chat. Like, I feel like I'm really getting value out of my NFT. So yeah, yeah. Out of crypto nomads. And recently uh, I just got back from Zuzulu and I learned about this network state called Afropolitan, which is this pan-African network state. And they really have a, a why for existing. I had dinner with one of the founders, the right before I left. And it's like, you know, the people like, you know, in Africa, they don't really have much leverage with their passports. They don't really, you know, the nation state system was not just like trampled over them. Let's be real. And so like, you know, the network state is a very natural fit for them. And, you know, Afropolitan was started even before network state was a concept. So like once Balji coined that term, like they were right on it. And so, um, you know, and what I liked about it is like, it was, even though it's like pan-African, in like its theme, it's like anybody can like go join. It's like if as long as you like share their like one commitment of you know of abund gaining abundance and, and everything. Like I really like like the mission. I'm like this is like the one network state experiment I've seen that like truly has a chance of like becoming something because it has such a, a strong why. And so I bought one. I bought like when they have 500 founding citizen NFTs, and I bought. One. I thought it was really interesting what they're doing. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, I was like thinking to them like oh, and like they're thinking about stable coins. I'm like. Oh, like how would like this network state release a stablecoin? Like, what would they adapt? Yeah, uh, or what would they, what would their stable unit of value even be? Right? Like, yeah, would it be yeah, like would it be dollars? Yeah. Would it be dollars? Would it be something else? Like, would it be yeah, you know, each stablecoin? But yeah, those are some uh, interesting uh, membership NFTs. Yeah, yeah, and and you know one thing one thing that reminds me of is uh, you know back to our kind of Web three social conversation. I think NFTs are actually the beginning of Web three social. Yeah, like, like social happens when you see people organizing using some medium, right? And, you know, not all NFTs are like this, obviously. Some people are just trading JPEGs around, but like, you know, there are certain NFTs that feel like communities. And especially if you're talking about things where, you know, maybe you even, maybe at some point you have to like pay dues to like hold on to your NFT, you know, right? Like, mm -hmm. you know, those things are, those those things usually exist in the middle, like a country club membership or something like that. Those things are all there because they provide you some kind of social value that's, you know, not sort of, a token or not not a financial in nature but there's some value in, in being associated with that group and you know I, if that's not social networking i don't know i don't know what it is yeah, that's the, <laughs> yeah. the original off-chain social network yeah. but I, i'd say that um along not only with like membership fees like a lot of nft projects sustain themselves just through the royalty fees and whatnot mm -hmm. and, and trading fees and whatnot yeah. yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, but I mean, I you know, I think that's like v1 of, of this stuff, v1. right? So yeah, yeah, if you could imagine like, you know, like, if I don't know, pick a random one, pick a Zookies or something, mm -hmm. if they keep throwing really awesome parties, and they become known, you know, you have to have an Azuki to get in, right? And they and they're like, well, you know, like, maybe the way to fund this thing is actually just to collect Deuce. like fees from people who want to come to these parties. Uh, you know, Maybe maybe, the, maybe there's an equilibrium there that works, right? And like, yeah. just the fact that you get access to these parties plus, uh, plus like you know maybe the people in that community are like super you know interesting to to get connected with and you get you get some excuse to see them, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe maybe yeah. that works. I I, oh, I mean yeah. I think I think colleges to a large extent are, are going to end up being this type of thing too. Uh, 
right? Yeah. So. You can say like you pay your taxes to get your passport. So yeah. yep, same thing. Yeah. Yeah, Ken, as a flywheel community member and as a potential future flywheel token holder, let's speed run some governance here. And who do you think we should have on next as a guest that you'd love to hear from? So you're going right into the lightning round. Oh, interesting. Uh, that's a good question. That, that one I didn't prepare for. Um, my kind of initial thought was, I wonder if there's like anyone on like the, like the, uh, like the regulatory side, you know, um, that might be interesting. That might be deep on stable coins. You know, there's, there's not a lot of them, but there's like, you know, uh, there are certain politicians that are pretty deep on it. Certainly there are staffers. If you know um, of anyone, I'd love to have them on. I'd love to have them on. Yeah. Yeah. That'd be an interesting one because, because I think, I think, uh, you know, you might get a different angle just to get a different take on on what um, what stable coins are. Um, I think I think there's potentially also a lot of these folks that are working on kind of this like T bill tokenization, like mm-hmm. like a, a new type of fiat stable coin. Um, some of those founders are pretty interesting. Uh, I don't know. Did you guys already bring the Ondo guys on or like? Yeah. Oh, no. No. Sorry. Not, not Ondo. No. Not, not yet. yet. Yeah. So there's just sort of like a they're sort of like one foot in real world assets and one foot in like stable coins on chain stable coins. Um, there's probably like an interesting set of founders there that, uh, that might be pretty on topic for you guys. Nice. I'll, I'll take the next cool. one. So this is our like quick, this is our like lightning round. So you sure. can answer these questions like sharp, fast. Um, yeah. Yeah. What would be some advice that you would give to your younger self? Ooh. College age Ken coming into the world. Uh, I think, um, you know, I, I've always, for, for a lot of my life, uh, I think, uh, I had this, I had this kind of perspective that like, if I wasn't learning anything, uh, I should like move on. And so a lot of, a lot of the times which I've decided to like move from one job to another or one thing to another is like when I felt like I stopped learning. Um, but knowing what I know now, I would actually go back and tell my younger self that actually it's when you become comfortable is the, is the moment that you should switch. It's like, there's, there's something about real learning. There's something about like real growth that feels very uncomfortable. Um, and all, all the times that I look back and say, Oh, I actually did that because it was just like the easier thing to do, the more comfortable thing to do. Those feel like kind of lost opportunities and lost time Mm. in the past. So it's kind of a, it's, 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 it's a bit of a nuanced thing. I don't know if it's, <laughs> but, um, get comfortable feeling uncomfortable. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's, that's how, you know, uh, that's how, you know, you're making progress. Yeah. It's like, you know, your muscle only grows when you work out and tear them. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. Sam knows that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And Ken, what was your, uh, virgin crypto experience? When did you first touch the blockchain? Uh, interesting. So, uh, there's, so I have a funny story because I, I was at VMware in 2009 and VMware has a bunch of open source engineers there. So we actually were talking about the Bitcoin white paper, like literally like the week that it came out, someone got a, got a, got a, got a sense of it. Um, he touched the white paper. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, no. So, so, I mean, it, it was really funny though, because, um, we were talking about it from a systems point of view. 
saying like, oh, this like, you know, the fact that you're using sort of economic principles to like solve this, you know, what people thought of as a, as a computer science problem was like really fascinating. Uh, and we kind of argue about whether that works or not. And like most people are like, yeah, it probably works. You know, it's, it's kind of a weird new thing, but probably works. The money side of it, everyone was like, there's no way that the, <laughs> that the Bitcoin, the actual coin part of it is going to work. Like, why would anybody use this thing? Right. Um, and so that, you know, that was my first touch. And, and so I have this really weird experience with crypto where almost from the very beginning, I kind of understood it technically, but you know, it wasn't sort of the main thing I was focused on. And I kept seeing this stuff on the side of like, oh, Bitcoin hits like $10 or like someone orders a pizza with Bitcoin and like all these kind of weird stories. Oh, wow. Stories. So you're just like <laughs> seeing it go by. Yeah. I'm like, what the hell? You know, like, and, and you know, I'm, I'm obviously focused on, you know, what I, what I was working on. So I wasn't paying super close attention, but I just see these bits and pieces. And I'm like, I, I still don't understand. Like, why is anyone like caring about this? I kind of didn't get it, um, you know, for, for a long time. And so I would say, you know, it was really when I started uh, in, well, so in 2017, I was still at Facebook, but there was a moment where uh, obviously, you know, 2017 people were going crazy and literally like every sort of one-on-one -on -one conversation that I was having with <coughs> my team would start with, oh, Bitcoin's at, you know, <laughs> X, Y, and Z, and here's what I'm going to go buy. And, you know, like whatever, I'm like, okay, this still sounds crazy, but it really reminded me of something that uh, I think uh, echoed one of the reasons I joined Facebook to start with, which was that you could feel that like this thing was spreading on its own, mm. right? Like Facebook had this property, like I, my parents got onto Facebook before I told them about it. Right. And so I'm like, when is the last time that that has happened? <laughs> right. Um, and so now I'm, I'm like, you know, I'm very like attuned to situations where like something seems to be spreading like wildfire because usually you know, that means there's some product market fit or some network effect or something that like is working there. Um, and so that moment in 2017 is when I started to say like, oh, you know what? This is like not just this like technological curiosity. This is actually bleeding, you know, and obviously, you know, Facebook employees are a pretty biased subset of people. But even within that fairly large population, like everybody's talking about this. There's something going on here that's like beyond, you know, just being a, an interesting sort of, you know, distributed systems thing. And so that's where, you know, mm -hmm. for me, I started kind of getting into it, but really, I think, you know, once I started electric and started playing with a lot of DeFi systems back in 2018, that's where it really clicked for me. It's like, oh, this is just like a totally different way of doing things that we do. With a money. fellow member of the class of 2017. Yeah. Woo. <laughs> and, and, um, to do the complete other side of that, what is your favorite off-chain touch grass activity oh interesting uh i just you know i feel like i'm so back to back <laughs> when i'm working that i actually just like to go to nice places and like literally do nothing like just sit on a beach like it's literally the the value is like the, the, the freedom from that mental stress of like always having to worry about, oh, what do I have in the next 30 minutes? What do I have in the next hour? Like that stress, if I can just get away that, get away from that for like a day, like that's always amazing. So I don't know if that counts as touching grass. Usually I like to do it in yeah. a place where you can touch is, grass. But, <laughs> that is but like, like the most touch grass answer yes. I have heard because yeah. you're not doing anything. You're just yeah. the epitome yeah. of touching grass. And you know, yeah. like I might actually end up doing something if I feel like it, 
but it's the it's the freedom from the obligation of having to do something that was like scheduled a month ago that is like extremely like mm -hmm. I, at least for my brain seems very um, restorative. Yeah, and Dave, should, should that, go ahead. Um, do I have any more? Um, I think that's it. I don't. I, I have the last one. I have the last, the last one, one here yeah. to to wrap. Um, Ken, if you weren't in product and you aren't in tech and you are not the prolific investor you are, what would your other life career path would have been? What's Ken doing um, on a different timeline? Yeah, I, I think I probably would have been a doctor. Mm. Um, I really like medical stuff for some reason. <laughs> you know, I like I like read PubMed for fun sometimes. So, <laughs> so like just just this like uh, like. Yeah, just like this natural curiosity towards like how humans work and like kind of biologically and, and it's just like, it's like infinite complexity, right? Um, and so I think I'm like naturally attracted to that kind of system. Um, you know, obviously a, a very different set of uh, stuff that you have to learn to be useful at all in, in that domain. But, you know, I try to, I, I'm an armchair doctor sometimes. <laughs> <that way. laughs> wow. Yeah. Well, Ken. Thank you so much for joining us. We're almost closing in at two hours. This was a marathon of an episode, but it felt like a sprint because it's just time flew by. I really enjoyed every minute listening to your insight and your frameworks, uh, how, not just how you view Frax and view DeFi, but really how you just view the world. So thank you so much for coming on. Uh, thank you for being a part of the Frax community. You're very valued here and uh, excited to you know see where everything goes from here with you, Electric, and I uh, hope to have you on soon. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for having me on, and it's uh, it's great, great to have uh, things like this in the community. So I really appreciate the work you do. Thanks. Thanks. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Flywheel Post Game Show. I'm your host, Defi Dave, and I'm here with Capital K. And we just finished the episode with Ken Dieter from Electric. Ken was a wealth of knowledge. Um, and uh, it was a lot of fun, that episode. I mean, I always say every episode is fun, but this was, like, really interesting. Like, I was really locked in to everything that he was saying because his frameworks for seeing the world were, like, very complete. They were articulate. You could follow, like, you could, I mean, this is how, like, proper VCs think. Uh, but, Kit, what are your thoughts of this episode? Let's talk about it. I think you nailed it. It is his way of thinking. My favorite question was actually around conviction and how kind of one thinks about conviction. And we always feel like, oh, the way you have conviction is like reading all the threads about this single one project or doing research about this single one project. But it's actually conviction comes from context of everything sure. around it. And, and that's kind of why it makes this project the most exciting project because of the worldview you have and the context that you live in. I thought that was like, yeah. you know, it's funny about this episode. Like we were asking all these like frax questions, but then we just like ended up like naturally going to hourglass. Yeah. But that yeah, we really tried. Right. We really tried to keep it to frax question, you know? So uh, I mean, but no, there's definitely did. a lot of frax yeah. content though. Definitely. Yeah. No, this is like, I feel like I said, I'm happy we got back to our roots here getting Ken on. Um, but yeah, like what a wealth of experience and knowledge, like even at the end, yeah, I like heard of the Bitcoin white paper the first week. We were talking about it from a systems perspective. I mean, like what? Like, and then imagine like you hear about Bitcoin the first week, and then you see it grow since from like and like an idea from like a email mailing list to like where it is today. 
Dude, I, I bet you he probably didn't even think of it as Bitcoin when the white paper came. Was, oh, no, eCash was probably the thing that like caught on more, right? Or, they no, he just thought even... of it as like, oh, like an interesting experiment. Like, oh, you're right, right. Exactly, exactly. Probably didn't even address this experiment as the word Bitcoin. He probably used another name for it. Like, mm-hmm. and, and just, you know, quick sneak peek for the listeners. We we're talking about how Ken was there at the white paper of the Bitcoin release on mm-hmm. the forums. Okay, that is the crazy part. Yeah, and it's, you know, I really liked, what was your, I mean, there's so many different parts. I'll, I'll go into like my favorite part of the episode was when we were talking about decentralized social um, and like what Web3 social oh, looks okay. like, because I've been like thinking about, you know, after like coming back from Zuzulu and like, you know, there's a lot of stuff, talk about identity online, whether it's like, you know, how do you represent that? How's that shown? How's that shown in a Web3 context? And I think, uh, he put on a really good lens on how to view on how what it could possibly look like because it's not going to look like Web two and uh, I like to you know Web two does a great job of proliferating uh, crypto and Web three so like a Web three social is going to have to do like have to perform a different function it has to be like a different shelling point to like gather people in one place um, and so I like they gave me like more color on like what that's going to look like per se uh, but anyways like what's your favorite part of the episode. I I think um, near the end when we asked him like what was the one thing people are ignoring, and oh, tokenomics was like dude. so spot on. Dude, I so want to like spot go, on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and the reason why I, I liked it was because everybody is literally poo pooing tokenomics like left and right. When and when he said like nowadays when I evaluate a project or look at projects, I almost look at tokenomics as a kind of like a given and almost like everybody has it and is all copy pasta of one another. But the way he was positing it was like, well, no, your tokenomics could actually be a moat. It could be actually defensible because so many things spawned out of your tokenomics. So even if your product is like the super sick NFT perpetual with no liquidation and blah, blah, blah. It could just be copied. Day, yeah. Yeah. Copy. At, at yeah. the end of the day, that, that tech can be copied. But the, the tokenomic side of thing, like that, that is unique. Like your token will be yours, only yours. Yeah. Um, I really, yeah, I really liked yeah. his language and how he described things. It's like tokens are a way to express this belief on chain. Like, oh, you lock in VE, you're expressing your long term commitment to a protocol. Like, you know, I think like that is the right way to think about tokenomics uh, from a long term, from an actual like, you know, fundamental long term perspective. It's like okay, like you know. I know these people are committed to the protocol because like they're staking or like, okay, like I know there's like people, there's going to be shit happening here because there's locked liquidity. Um, this is like an episode, like we'll ha- definitely have to listen to again. Yeah, Cause I'm sure again. there's so many little trinkets. Are, are there, I actually got a question for you, Dave. Mm-hmm. Are there any areas that he talked about that you disagreed with or any area that you want to hear more about? Um, yeah. I guess like I, I'm curious to learn more about like it's I guess the, about the monetary premium of Brexit, you know, increasing its monetary premium because that's like a tough problem to solve, and I, it's like, what is the solution to that? And I'm not sure. I'm not sure if he really like gave one per se. I think it's like one of those things that like grows like naturally. I think he was like maybe like knocking Frax. A, I'm going to defend Frax like Frax a bit too much. I mean, Frax is like barely even two years old, and it's like grown to a billion and like bootstrapped itself in a certain way. But like, I do have to agree with him. Like, yeah, like it's, you know, 
where can we like grow and expand beyond the curve ecosystem? I think that's like probably the most common criticism of Frax is like, you know, like, yeah, curves great and all, but like, what else is there for you guys? But like, there's plenty, I think there's like a lot else out there as I pointed out with like, you know, Olympus Dow and its forks, like some, um, you know, using Frax in its reserves. And I think, you know, once like Frax V3 comes out and we find out what it is and it's the risk-free asset of DeFi and people like use Frax for the sake of it being Frax and use Frax ETH and Frax ETH replaces WETH, um, you know, then like, you know, it's game over. And yeah, that's me being biased and super bullish, but so, yeah. No, I mean, I am too. <laughs> so, <laughs> there's not much for me to say uh, outside of that. But re- regardless, I, I think my other bit that I wish Ken elaborated a bit more on was the way he um, assessed risks for a investment into something like Frax in the very beginning. Yeah. Because, you know, hearing from a founder saying, hey, I'm going to take on the dollar market wait expressing dollars on chain (laughs) yeah like like say say that again like how how did he assess risk at that point in time and you know how did he kind of adjust risk over time because remember he kept on saying long term long term long term and obviously the four year was just a you know crv thing that just happened to stick i i wanted to hear like what his long-term thoughts were when they cut that that investment into frax i wonder how t-bills are on chain too i'm not i'm not sure about that either unless like there's like some pass-through system where the interest of the t-bill goes to some like non-profit or something and i you know it's just like at the end of the day like when, until like regulation is clear and frameworks are set it's like hard to like have these things on chain yeah <clears throat> um it's definitely i think a it's more of an accounting and and labeling thing in my opinion because quite frankly and this is just a thing that I was thinking about. If theoretically there is a fiat stable coin and this fiat stable coin has US dollar at or holds treasury with the US dollar that it custodies. And let's say it needs to incentivize on-chain liquidity. It could theoretically just rebrand it, uh, rebrand the yield distribution of the T-bill as a marketing spend for on-chain promotions mm. via bribes they would literally be bribing with US dollars, which is unseen, un like never, never seen before. It's like USDC coming in to be like, yeah, I'll give you guys some USDC for incentivizing my- Talk about pool. a war chest and talk about <laughs> like, you know, as if I, I said this in the beginning of the podcast, like, oh, it's like JP Morgan going on chain. Imagine if they do that, if they like enter the, you know, JP Morgan has entered the chat. <laughs> Boom. Boom. Oh my God, dude, the day yeah. that we see- uh, you know, JUSD dropping on the curve proposal for, to request for a gauge is when, like, all right, like that's the look, ma, we made it moment. Yeah. <laughs> you know? All right. Um. So, uh, final question: uh, What is your biggest takeaway from this episode? Ooh. Okay. Come back to me on that one. I'll let you go first. Let me think. Um. Let me think. I just want to have him on again to like in like six months and like go like see how like things play out. Um, I mean, that's not really a takeaway. Um, we're in the right place with a uh, stable coins and stable coin maximalism. I think stable coin, my biggest take, I think like, yeah, I think every day more and more I get convinced of stable coin maximalism being like 
the the structure for DeFi protocols to gain the most value on chain and grow and scale on chain. Yeah, I'm not. No, yeah, I... and like how like you know that was kind of discovered through experimentation, like the structure of stablecoin maximalism. Yeah, I would, I would have to agree. I would have to agree that it, it reaffirmed my belief kind of in, in Frax. And especially when I kept on asking him like, what else should Frax do or should Frax improve here and there? He really mm -hmm. got to the, the nitty gritty of it and be like, well, no, actually Frax should stay focused exactly where they are. And yeah. second, and they should make it easier for people to use what use they're it. currently focusing yeah. on. And notice how he said, like, he didn't criticize Frax for, like, building so many privatives. In fact, he was like, no, it's good that they're building, they're shipping uh, in a very focused and intentional manner. Um, but, yeah, I think, like, got great feedback for the hackathon. I think, like, we're going to, like, really focus on, like, onboarding front ends, front ends, front ends, onboarding devs with infra, um, something else I talked about. Um, and also, like... I, I never thought of like web two being like a, the field for like web three to play on. Like none of this would ex like, we would not have be having these conversations if it wasn't for like Twitter and telegram and whatnot. But anyways, we're over the limit for this uh, post game. So if you want to keep on joining us, harnessing the power of the flywheel, uh, make sure you hit that bell button, subscribe, Leave us a comment. Let us know what you think. Give us a like button. We'll be keep coming back week after week, day after day with more of these things, more of these episodes. If you want to find out more, go to our Twitter at FlywheelDefi. Join us on Telegram at FlywheelDefi. You can follow me on Twitter at DefiDave22. You can follow me at 0x capital underscore K. And we'll see you next week. Everything said on this episode is not financial or tax advice. This channel is strictly for educational purposes and is not an investment advice or solicitation to buy or sell any assets or to make any financial decisions. This video is not tax advice whatsoever. Please talk to your accountant and do your own research.